0: Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it that we have read. I am Cameron, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Michael. Hi!
1: Oh, no, I just dropped my dice!
0: Uh Oh. Well, did you know... The rainbow appears. Did you know, little Michael, did you know that (laughs) dice didn't always exist? If you said, give me a D12 to a man in ancient Babylon, he wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Probably because you're speaking English. I, that's the problem. <laughs> he only spoke in ancient memes. <laughs> Pictograms.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before uh, 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 what's-his-face, Enki uh, hacked everyone's brains. I've read Snow Crash. Yeah, I mean, that that was the problem. That's what uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh is all about. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, if you want to see that, you can go to our other show, uh, Cyberpunk Bunk, Bunk Buddies, <laughs> where we, uh, there's an elaborate uh, thing where we, um, it's like we're at summer camp. We read cyberpunk the whole time.
2: <laughs> there's
0: Continue. like a whole fictional universe takes place in. <laughs> and no, we're
1: not doing that show. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing the show where we pretend to be away at summer camp and reading cyberpunk novels, you say? Yeah, we're not. I okay. gotta, gotta
0: put my foot down. Okay. <laughs> the Even though soon we're going to do the summer classics. Summer classics. Summer of classics. Hey, hey, you out this summer going to summer classics? time to learn about all the books, game studies. It's a little preview for something we'll be talking about later. But in this episode... We're not talking about cyberpunk, uh, and we're not going to talk about Judy. We're talking about the elusive shift, how role-playing games forged their identity. By uh, John, John Peterson. Peterson. <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> I keep like, that I don't in. Know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John Peterson. So it's uh, out from MIT Press from 2020. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, I don't know. What's up? You read this book before Michael, you know anything about John Peterson? Absolutely not. Okay. Well did you learn anything about John Peterson?
1: Uh I learned that he has a whole bunch of old zines.
0: Right. Yeah. So John John Peterson is probably Most famous for maybe a couple things, I guess, kind of depending on the angle at which you approach his work or encountered his work. One is that uh, John Peterson has been blogging for, I don't know, 15 years or something, a very long time, maybe longer than that even, but blogging about D&D and tabletop gaming history. Um, You know, John Peterson has been this kind of like force on the internet who tells you about this kind of thing. Um, about what what happened in the earliest days and as you're talking about Michael he has some sort of extensive um I don't know uh library yeah. <laughs> archive of early zine materials that he heavily pulls from in his work so in his blog posts uh, he also does a lot of interviews, I believe. Uh, that doesn't show up so much in this book that we read, but I believe he, he's often pulling from interviews and in, like the blog posts that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, although I guess maybe I don't know if he's doing those interviews or if, if he's kind of pulling on other work. Um, but he's probably best known up until this book, at least, uh, for writing Playing at the World, which came out in 2012. Uh, Playing at the World, uh, which is notably not the play of the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Playing at the World is this kind of like, tome (laughs) you know you could you could throw it and injure a person Mm -hmm. uh it's 700 plus pages it's like hardcover sized even though it's not a hardcover and it is digging into like what happened in the history of tabletop role playing and D &D in particular and uh, i've read big pieces of it i don't think i could say that i've ever read it cover to cover um, I think it's a Herculean task to do, but, uh, I've heard big pieces of it, um, both just because for fun and then also while doing research for other projects or while teaching, I've, I've taught big chunks of it before, particularly this kind of like, uh, his first pass, I, I, I would say that what's happening in the elusive shift is kind of a rerun or a rearticulation or a clarification of a lot of stuff that, that gets, uh, you know, kind of a chapter in, uh, playing with the world. So I've engaged with that book quite a bit, but yeah, as you're saying, this is informed heavily by this archive that he's got, uh, that he's just reading through and quoting from extensively, and so this is an interesting book, I would say, for a couple reasons. Number one, it is a game, I I think the title does a a, a disservice, number one, it's not a game, but number two, (laughs) uh, I think the title does a little bit of a disservice, because the title is The Elusive Shift, How Role Playing Games Forge Their Identity which is like accurate, that's fine. But what this book is about at its like core is where did role-playing come from? Mm-hmm. And that that is like a way more interesting title if, if this book had just been called Where Did Role Playing Come From? <laughs> I, I feel like it because, like, the other day I was guesting on a podcast. I was on um, the Elden Ring spoiler cast for 99 Potions. And at the end of it, I was doing a little promo, whatever, as you do. And I was like, hey, I'm reading this book that's about the history of role playing and, like, where does role playing come from in the, t- the tabletop space? And everyone was like, oh, what? There's a book on that? Um, and so, you know, I don't know. Titling the book, I know this from first hand experience. Titling the book is hard trying to express what it is. But if you're like, ah, the elusive shift, I don't know. Maybe I'll just listen to this episode or or maybe I'll just see what's up. I'll listen to the banter at the beginning and turn this episode off. Don't do it. I don't think many people are doing that. But don't turn the episode off because what is in this book is very interesting. Um, And I'm I'm glad to talk about it, eager to talk about it. Um, And, uh, yeah. Oh, I guess the additional thing here. Is I don't believe that John Peterson has any academic appointment. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, I, I, I'm 99% sure he doesn't have a PhD. Um, and uh, I'm not sure about a master's degree, mm-hmm. which is not to say like you have to do it, have any of those things to do this kind of work. Um, but to say it is notable that John Peterson is like the foremost or one of the most cited, at least, and engaged with historians of tabletop role playing and it's kind of fully done outside of the traditional um you know whatever mechanisms of academia um you know that it, that it is uh John Peterson's work is like fan community historiographic work and it and it holds up i would say against any other kind of history historical work Uh, it does not have a theoretical component, which, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, academic history would have. And so it actually does make for some kind of weird reading that we'll talk about. But uh, I do think that's notable that, that, you know, John Peterson is doing this kind of thing and doing it, um, uh, in intensely archival and focused form and working with an academic press, but comes from a trajectory that's outside of that. And I don't know enough about Peterson to know what, you know, what the story is there. And I actually tried to look a little bit and, uh, couldn't find anything kind of immediately accessible. What, what what do you think? Big uh, first blush, Michael. What do you think uh, is going on here uh, in this book?
1: Just like in in the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Anything
0: stick out to you or whatever before we start start um, talking about it?
1: Um, 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 I think you know not to not to just like diffuse everything by uh, spoiling the end. Uh. Um, but I think that what is really fascinating about this uh and uh, what you just said uh, uh could tie into this in a little bit uh in in the sense that uh there might be another way of telling the story that peterson tells uh with some sort of theoretical component uh that gets us uh someplace different uh with kind of similar evidence but uh the way that peterson has kind of lined up his evidence here and the way that he interprets it um i think is interesting uh because it uh underscores what feels like just the terminal circularity of being in the tabletop role-playing game space. Like, we are part of a structure, and that structure is producing the same outcomes every ten years or so, right? Uh, There are Uh, versions of debates that are being had in 1976 that literally are being had right now like uh you know the specific components change a lot of sort of like resonances and valences change uh but like the the kind of like structures of the debates do not resolve and i think that's really interesting
0: yeah uh peterson takes you know a really great effort here at the beginning of the book in a couple places to be like, hey, these debates that you were going to see in this book, you know, in the emergent moments of tabletop role-playing broadly and then D&D specifically, uh, you know, so uh, 74, 75, 76, 77, like these really early years, you're going to read them and you're going to be like, dang, this is just like blah, blah, blah. You know, these other people. We can't, it, it, and he's like, I only care about what these original people said in this book, right? <laughs> like, do not – we? I don't want to take the the design frames of anyone else, right? I want to look and see how these people were doing it uh, themselves. But, yeah, because you're right. Like, everything – you know, I, I think this this is language that, that I guess I use because I've adopted. But, really, this is language that was introduced to me um, by Danny, my, you know, uh, Range Touch co-founder and um, Mages and Murder Dad's co-host, Danny, of, like, Fluff and Crunch. Mm-hmm story stuff versus, like, gritty mechanics, right? And those are obviously dismissive terms, you know, at least the fluff part. Uh, uh, And uh, it's very funny to be like, oh, yeah, in 1975, everyone was talking about that too, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's basically no debate that happens on Twitter about tabletop role-playing games that did not happen between 1974 and 1977 in a fanzine somewhere. Mm Mm-hmm um and there is no i mean i i guess that's what what is so great about peterson's kind of deal here right is that like it it, it enables you to say that to be like look this is not resolvable mm-hmm. like this is this is in fact the issues that we have between like do the dice tell the truth or not right yeah. should a character be preserved you know in story is it is it bad right you know like these these outrageous twitter statements like uh you know, uh it it's directly harmful to someone to, to like manipulate the dice, right? Mm-hmm. Which has like a full argument of uh argumentative framework for it, right? I'm not immediately dismissive of that, but you can make an argument for anything within this context because of the way that that role playing itself is kind of indeterminate. That so what Peterson's kind of big broad claim is here is that um when you search for a definition of role playing and you search for definitions of the ways that dice and human beings interact together in a fictional space that is supported by rules, you can basically say anything, mm-hmm. right? Like everything is provable there. Mm-hmm. There, It is just a matter of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can see a lot of different kind of competing philosophies produced at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in these early moments. Um, and in some ways it was a corporate er- error, question mark a corporate <laughs> decision that, that afforded some of that with the production of D in a very particular kind of way that then um while not inventing role-playing certainly popularized role-playing um around the united states in a very corporate manner and then with the addition of D, AD&D really <laughs> solidified that um so i don't know i, I think uh, yeah it was very enlightening to me to read this to be like oh my god that it is not worth replying to anyone on twitter on any of these issues <laughs> uh, i mean it is in the sense of if if, if you want to create new philosophies of play mm-hmm. right like these debates are worth having but uh i think i think often these conversations are had in the um uh, in the tone of breaking new ground and in the tone of here's where everyone has always been, here's where this argument is. Mm-hmm. And I think what we can see is that even in those earliest moments, there you can't even make those statements, right? That whatever you want to do with dice and characters and pieces of paper and human beings sitting around a table inventing fictional worlds, whatever you want to do with those things, someone did in the
1: 1970s. Mm-hmm and then wrote extensively about it. <laughs> yes, in a fancy. <laughs> um yeah, and so like I mean, like uh uh the previous uh, straight up history book that we read, uh Sailors as if um, this is a book that is worth reading, especially if you are here for the anecdote or the incident, like there's just so much kind of archival work and just like, here's this person's argument from this fanzine and here's this person responding to them and here's how this developed and, uh, uh, all of that stuff is, is really great and cool to, to learn about. And I'm going to shout out some of my favorite moments of that as we could continue. <laughs> mm hmm. The, uh, uh, and yeah, I think we said this the last time too,
0: but you know, this, this type of book is very contrastable with something that I would call like a cultural history, which would be like, uh, Kossurik's coin, o- coin operated Americans, mm-hmm. right? Like both, both works of history, very different approaches to mm-hmm. the way they do it. And very different from, you know, uh, Jacob Gabori's work, for example, right? Which is, you know, this kind of archeological work of, of historical reconstruction and kind of argument, um, can we talk about method really quick? I think that's important before we go forward because we've talked about like what the archive is, mm-hmm. right? But you know, I think this is actually quite different from the sailor book. I don't, I don't know if you felt this way, but it, you know, in the sailor episode, I, I was pretty upfront in like that the way that sailor narrativizes history and historical moments often kind of rubbed me in a way I didn't like. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like uh, a little bit, a little bit of friction for me in the way that, especially the way that those kind of had some kind of, uh, pat theoretical outcomes of like, and therefore we know that H.P. Lovecraft, you know, liberalized or whatever. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I wasn't on board for that. This is a, uh, explicitly non-narrativized history. Yes. What do you think? I mean, you're the more historian of the two of us. What what do you you want to say more about that? Or do you have a, a feeling about that or about the way that the method of this book
1: kind of works? Um, I think overall, this is sort of fine in that, like, uh, what I what I would be more interested in, uh, in a general sense, and certainly, you know, like what I would like, what something that I would write in kind of this space would be doing more about uh, pressing on kind of the ideological implications of this or that person's uh, stance on how a game should be run, right? And because that is a thing that does not really happen here, we get kind of uh say person a's thoughts on uh how much should your players know about the mechanics and rules outside of uh what is kind of being communicated to them by the game master um mm-hmm. and then you'll have person b's response where they're where they take kind of like a different tactic and uh Peterson will say uh you know here you can see like this person is uh relying on uh, something like this person is maybe relying on something that comes out of science fiction fandom. Right. And, uh, this other person is relying on something, uh, more that had been debated or talked about, or was kind of more the norm in the war gaming fandom. Uh, and that, that ambiguity, right. This, uh, this is like a big meta claim of the book is that there's a, a kind of clash of cultures that is built into D and D, um, that results mm-hmm. in a lot of these, uh, debates and discussions. Uh, And, you know, and it's, it's fine. It seems accurate. Uh, but a lot of the time, and I noticed actually you, you pointed out some of this too. There, there are moments where you can kind of get like, uh, uh, like say a religious outlook from a person. Um, and it's like. and it's just kind of like the language is just sort of there in the way that they're describing for instance what they think role playing is or what you need to do with your characters Uh, and it passes basically unremarked like it's not like uh, Peterson is trying to hide this or anything I don't want to say Mm. that Uh, but it's more like uh, there are moments here where uh, you can press a little further and maybe bring this into conversation with like larger cultural currents Um, but mostly this is a fairly insular kind of look at uh, how these two fandom spaces came together and then formed their own kind of strange hybrid fandom space, uh, and and it treats it kind of as maybe not not uh, internal to itself, but uh, sort of closed off.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, You
1: know, I would say that a
0: lot of what's happening in this book is reportage.
1: Yes. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And I don't mean, that in like a rude way or, or a negative way, but that's just factually what's occurring. Right. Like in this issue of X, person Y said Z. In the next issue of A, person B said C. This is how they run into each other. This is the context for those statements. This is why it happened. This is maybe some of the implications of that because they went on to found these companies Mm -hmm. or, you know, they went on to found their own glossy magazines uh, rather than fanzines, which then had big implications for the way that design language changed. Like there's a lot of really great historical reportage of the thing that happened. But exactly as you're saying, there is not there's barely any Um, digging down into the implications of the way that these things are said. You know, I, I don't remember anywhere in here, you know, and this is a thing that, that does happen in his previous book, but there's not really anywhere in here where it's like, hey, can we think about like the racial and class makeup of the people who mm-hmm. are doing this and the gender makeup? Uh, because this is a, at least gender wise, much more diverse set of people engaging with these fanzines than I would have assumed. Yes. Although having thought about it, you know, uh, early fanzines in uh, uh, in science fiction fandom and science fiction fantasy fandom, not even early, just fanzines period, very, very, uh, you know, diverse, at least on gender lines. And so I guess thinking about those things emerging from one another, I shouldn't have been surprised, but, you know, those things are just presented and there is no discussion of that kind of, you know, broader set of contexts there, which are, which are fascinating. Exactly like what you're talking about with the, we'll get there, but um, there is an um, so many people in early tabletop role-playing imagine the relationship between the DM or the designer, you know, the, the they flip back and forth, and the players as the relationship between God and sometimes his chosen people, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating thing, and then sometimes like the world itself, you know, and I, I think here about you know, Mark Wolf's book on subcreation in in Mist. you know. Mm-hmm. He kind of identified some of that strain within both those Mist games and then the tabletop uh, community before that. Uh, th- that's a really interesting book if people want to check it out. But that's unremarked upon, right? Like, that's quoted, that's left there, and that's left for you and I or any other reader to kind of do the ideological work of figuring out, well, what does this mean, right? Like, what does it mean that during the Nixon years, everyone was, like, hyper-focused in on what is the relationship between uh, fiction and the world, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, you know, when, when uh, you know, the executive branch is like fully formed on just making shit up. Um, that seems to be an interesting interrelation, but that's not here. Like it is just reportage of what is occurring. And I think we'll take some breaks along the way to kind of break things up. But that is something that sticks out. If you're, if you are, Going into this thinking about something like, you know, the framework of coin-operated Americans or anything else that gives the kind of political, or broader theorization of these things, um, that's not what this is. This is about analyzing the words that people said and how they came to agreements or disagreements about what role-playing is. And Peterson says that as much, you know, um, in the acknowledgments, which we can move for toward if you want to do that. <laughs> oh, the acknowledgments. That's where we're starting today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start with the yes. acknowledgments. Okay. Uh if only because there's there's two things uh that I want to say about the yeah, acknowledgements. Twenty five minutes in.
1: Let's start with the acknowledgments. Let's go. Yeah, let's
0: start with the acknowledgments, and I want to talk about every person that gets mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to say two things about it really quickly. Uh so first is that this opens with an anecdote that um John Peterson was with Jonathan Tweet uh at Peter Atkinson's house and a conversation that they had inspired writing this book. Peter Atkinson is the uh, original founder of Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that ca- tells you, I'm pretty sure. Let me make sure that's true. I'm 99.999. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, but that gives you a sense of who are John Peterson's friends or who is John Peterson's spending time with in the world. Um, and I don't think it's like a humble brag. <laughs> I was at Peter Atkinson sounds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I you know, hope you don't know, but right. Like, Talking about community, talking about audience, those things, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's hanging out with Peter Atkinson. Uh, the other one is that Peterson actually talks about working with zines um, and says, like, "Look, zines are hard. Uh, sometimes they have a, a, you know, they come out six months later from the date on the cover, and that's just how it is. Uh, sometimes they are people just kind of making shit up and <laughs> or or misrepresenting other people's arguments, and so you can't even see the other side of the argument." um you know they they are notoriously slippery and so um you know he tries to represent them as best as possible but also takes them as like you know straight statements it seems like for the most part i mean he couches some statements in this book or quotations as like you know we, we have to think about this critically but you know he basically defends the
1: zine project here mm-hmm. sort of um, like um, if you were again, i don't know talking about forum posts about a web comic or something right right which you what well, yes very similar deal um <laughs> I don't know. What do you want to talk about, Michael? Uh, I mean, we've already kind of given given the big picture ideas here, but not as explicitly as we could. So uh, the introduction lays out a couple of points. Uh, one is that... Uh, eh, Role playing had to be invented. Dungeons and Dragons uh, comes on the scene in 1974, and it is not marketed as a role playing game. That's not a, a term that appears in it or on it. Uh, But a role playing game becomes attached to it and its various derivations and spinoffs and sort of uh, imitators. Uh, almost, uh, apparently entirely because of like fan response or sort of like user engagement that this is a term that people in this space, uh, in the tabletop gaming space, uh, come up with to describe what is happening with D and D, uh, that is, well, it ends up going in a whole bunch of different directions because, uh, it reminds me actually a little bit of, um, Lisa Gittleman's book Always Already New*, which is a Mm -hmm, book about mm -hmm. the invention of like recorded sound and how like one of the things that she talks about is that uh, the the various people who were interested in inventing sound recording technologies and marketing them uh, primarily thought that that was going to be kind of like an educational apparatus that people would like to hear like recorded lectures and things like that and it turned out people really liked listening to recorded music uh, which caught a lot of people by surprise, but like for us, like obviously we love to listen to recorded music, but that was a that was a, a sort of uh, user demand that was not uh, anticipated by the people who developed the technology most of the time, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know D and D comes out of uh, this strange melding of the science fiction fandom, and this is talked about uh, more extensively in the next chapter, but uh Gygax's background is uh in war gaming, and war gaming is its own kind of thing uh and has a whole bunch of other priorities that I guess we'll talk about more indirectly uh but the the, the whole point is that d and d does not come out saying i'm a role playing game it's like i'm I'm a kind of uh version of a of a war game, and this is the other important part. Uh, that is kind of how it's described later on in the book is like a, a build your own game kit that D&D does not the first like uh, version of D&D from Gygax and Arneson does not give uh, like a, a, a holistic rules system. It gives you like various heuristics and like sort of subsystems that you as the uh what we would call like now the the game master, but it was often called here, the designer or what it shows up a, a lot in this book as the referee. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you actually take this kind of weird toolkit, uh, that the pamphlet offers, and then you assemble your own system out of those tools, uh, according to your own preferences, uh, inclinations and, uh, the preferences and inclinations of the people who you're playing with. Um, and one of those things that comes out of that is people who are interested in role playing and this uh folds into just all of uh these weird uh, things where when, when a uh, sort of rival outfit wants to put out their version of a tabletop game that is sort of modeled on D&D, like, role-playing game becomes one of the ways that they signal that uh, they've, like, made a hack or sort of a spin-off of D&D without, like, infringing on D&D intellectual property, right? D- uh, role-playing mm-hmm. most emerges as a way for people to um, signal that they've cloned some element of D&D into uh, their own system and therefore it becomes it's kind of like uh, a marketing label that in a perverse fashion D itself then has to lean into in order to kind of continue to uh insist on its uh you know importance in the space or its relevance or, or what have you um but one of the problems with this is that because role-playing uh was not a thing that was sort of anticipated in the original design uh because it kind of gets centered due to uh like community reaction or input um, all of the ambiguities of this thing not really existing in the original game, uh, mean that people spend years and years trying to figure out what is role-playing? How do you encourage it? Uh, what are the bad things? Like, what are the bad consequences of role-playing too much versus focusing on, say, systems or, or what have you? Is there a way to meld, uh, systems in role-playing? Or are these things always exclusive in, in, uh, all of these questions? And that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the meat of the matter.
0: Yeah, and I cannot stress enough how much this is just like hanging out on TTRPG Twitter for a week. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it took way longer <laughs> in the seventies, right? Because uh, if you don't, if you don't know how fanzine worked, uh, and maybe you don't, right? So, uh, fanzines emerge out of in, in the lineage for um for uh the role playing fandom here that that Peterson is laying out. Science fiction fandom uh, from the 1930s on organizes itself regionally for the most part in kind of enclaves. So, you know, if you're in the Midwest, you have particular groups or if you're in uh, particularly large cities, you have particular fanzine groups uh, where you might hold conventions or you might hold meetups or whatever. And this was way more common then than, than it is now you know now our kind of like deal in science fiction fantasy and and what has you know become the generalized nerd con or whatever right is that there are these major regional ones that are huge so think about like PAX Dragon Con San Diego Comic Con that kind of thing and there's like you know i don't know 15 major ones that happen a year somewhere in that realm in the in the continental united states and then maybe i don't know another 40 minor ones you know mm-hmm. um you know, maybe more than that, maybe a hundred, we'll say a hundred minor ones, you know, for individual cities. Like, for example, I was in, um, uh, uh, Tucson, Arizona one time, and there was just like a local, like comic con happening. Right. Uh, the, uh, but so like at that, but this time, right in the 1960s, 1970s, this is exploding and it's huge. And there are hundreds. I mean, they're, they're happening constantly. Samuel Delaney talks about at one point that when, he began writing science fiction uh kind of in earnest which would have been the 1960s early 70s around the same time period or i guess mid 60s uh that there were something like 350 cons um mm-hmm. and like cons that people went to um you know that were known and recognized and things like that this is like a number i'm pulling out of a book i read a couple of years ago so if that is inaccurate please forgive me um but uh j- just to say the scale of this thing of like you know kind of um, what science fiction fandom was doing and organizing was much different from now, which is that, uh, you know, now for the most part, nerd properties, they are the monoculture, right? They are mass culture. They are uh, part of every moment of every day for someone who is engaged in it. And you can go literally anywhere and talk about these things. Like I could talk about Superman and Batman with basically anyone on this planet at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might be like a Batman, but for the most part, uh they they know who you're talking about that's just not the case uh at 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 this moment in time you know science fiction fantasy people they are their own kind of distinct subculture and they are organizing and talking to each other through predominantly zines um and there are so many of them mm-hmm. um you know there are a couple websites that have scanned in you know big things uh you know massive pdfs of um you know fanzines and you can you know they go from everything that's like you know, someone putting it together with handwritten type and then, you know, uh, copying it somewhere uh, and shipping it out to 18 of their closest friends to, you know, massive distribution of like a thousand plus people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they go everywhere. And so basically, this, this is all to say that Peterson says that that the um, wargaming and then role playing fandoms and players that are kind of within that already. You know they, they are largely emerging from these fandoms. That that is the there's heavy cross pollination between these, particularly the fantasy subset of kind of the science fiction fandom broadly, and that that is like a huge accelerant. Also, it means that the people who are heavily engaged in these kind of genre um, zines. Uh, and, are, and are writing essays about like what makes a good space story or like why is X better than Y or, you know, that kind of thing. Why my dad can beat up your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, those people are can now take the kind of mode of approach that they have to their own fandoms that they already exist in and then begin applying that to this emergent game property. So what makes a good science fiction story? In form, as far as an article is concerned very easily shifts into something like what makes a good dnd campaign mm-hmm. you know the word campaign is actually not being used at this point but what makes a good dnd playing thing yeah <laughs> you know we gotta be careful about our terminology
1: but it it really does kind of shift the terms here uh yeah go ahead i was just gonna say as as peterson uh points out, Uh, according, like, if you have, like, your your first printing D&D from 1974, it is not at all clear what anyone is actually doing. Like, it is impossible to divine what playing D&D entails or looks like. Right.
0: Yes. Uh, Yeah, we have to, that's a thing that you have to get yourself in the mindset of. If you somehow got a copy of D&D, which would have been pretty unlikely, I think in the first year that 4,000 copies went out. Something like that, yeah, that's the number I remember. Something like that uh the if you got it and no one showed you how to play you were just reading this book and figuring it out and it is deeply unclear i mean just to be honest you can get all the way to like ad and (laughs) d and read that like intro book and not have any idea how to play i was talking with with danny about this the other day that we once tried to do that we actually bought the first like A D and D books. We got them in a used bookstore and got a really good deal on them. And we bought them and we were like we we're like, yeah, we're gonna play A D and D and we'd been playing, you know, we kinda grew up in the three point oh, three point five, you know, mm-hmm. time. We started playing before fourth edition came out. And so uh so we sat down to do it and it was like, oh my God. What do, what do we even do? Like, <laughs> yeah. when do we roll? <laughs> um, and so, so you know, uh, the, a lot of this, a lot of the knowledge that we had at the time or that players had at the time about D&D is cultural knowledge. Someone showed you how to play it or you got it and you just figured it out. And so what happens is that you end up with these enclaves of fans who are all, all engaging with one another. And so, like, someone, you know, gets from a family member or they see it in another fanzine being advertised... They get DD, you know, the box set gets shipped to them all the way from, you know, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and they live in L.A., and they're hanging out with all the science fiction fans who are, like, you know, doing a different thing than science fiction fans in New York, for mm-hmm. sure. Like, these are distinct science fiction cultures, uh, if you read any kind of history of, of science fiction fantasy. They get it, and then they start doing their own thing with it, you mm-hmm. know, the the... The game, this is not something, this is, again, like the lack of, of a theorization here. You can really feel it. The The reception of the object is the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. D&D as it is played is what D&D is. And this book, in some ways, is just like an elaboration of what happens when very
1: different groups receive something and then invent new games didn't th- believe they're the same game <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah 1974 D. like you you don't play it out of the box it needs house rules like you need to spackle this stuff together and that is going to and that is going to happen at the discretion of your game master um mm-hmm. and that's going to result in different games and one of the nice things about this that peterson points out is that uh you know, we we tend to think of history as pretty linear, right? I'm using we in a very general sense there, right? I'm trying to paint a picture. But we think that, like, there's kind of a, a straight line, and things are one way, and uh, the line continues, and then things change, and they become a different thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So we might think that uh, because this comes out of a wargaming background that at the beginning, D&D was all just wargaming, and then at some point and this is why the book is called The Elusive Shift uh, at some point, something shifted and it became more about roleplaying, and one of the things that Peterson points out is like, no, actually uh, these things were always there from the beginning because everyone who was playing D&D was playing different versions of things and calling it D&D, which meant that you had some groups that were uh, more into character-based play versus power gaming or level progression or things like that, Uh, uh, and then, as you're pointing out, the uh, uh, the real accelerant comes when these people start uh, talking to each other through zines, trying to figure out like what is what is the superior way to play D and D, or like what is the right way to play, right?
0: Yeah, and uh, and even those terms, right, start introducing really difficult uh, uh, I don't know negotiations, right? What is the correct way to play? versus what is the superior way to play versus what is the best way to play, mm-hmm. right? And like, these are not terms that that I'm, I'm inventing this kind of categorization. Uh, this is not what Peterson is saying, but right, like even the values that are inherent in the statements, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, is, it, is D&D about adhering to the rules and having a kind of wargaming experience? Is D&D about creating a setup for everyone to have fun? hmm. Right. Th- those are different ways of engaging with it. Again, these are conversations that still happen today. You know, Peterson, when Peterson says that these conversations are cyclical, he's not wrong. Though, <laughs> right. Like, um, but maybe we can maybe we can make that jump because, you know, we've kind of talked through the introduction uh, on page XVI. Uh, Peterson's says that practitioners and players of the game quote resorted to theorizing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which I think is very funny. Like, Oh, only in the last instance where things cannot be resolved. Do we have to theorize about the game? Um, and that's what basically the rest of the book is about. What are the theories of play that happen? And the kind of, um, I don't know, the primary antagonism of this is what, what he calls the two cultures in chapter one, which is in fact called the two cultures. So, Want to want to move there? Was that, was that I okay? thought I
1: already explained it, but
0: all right. <laughs> oh no, you did. I just want to put it in, the, in yeah. very stark terms and and give a little bit of the history here. Okay, uh, just because I think that's part of what people care about. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So absolutely, as you just said, like the two cultures themselves are, uh, the war game people versus the storytelling people, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. Right. Right. And notice
1: um, notice right, like uh, that we might be tempted. This is another Peterson thing. Uh, we might be tempted to be like, oh, all the war gamers are. Uh, Into the systems and into the crunch, Uh, all the people from the science fiction fandom are into story and characters and sort of like the the D&D setting as a way of generating a story together. And certainly these are claims that are made in the zines by various people theorizing, saying like, well, it's people who are more like they're the, the someone uh, says repeatedly, like, there are people who want it might even be Gygax himself. No, it's not Gygax, but it's someone who's like, people, people just want this to be like an interactive fantasy novel that the DM is writing, basically. Um yeah, the talking
0: book. Yes. Again, another you know, kind of pseudo-religious or actually explicitly religious thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, the, the talking book image comes up a couple times.
1: Yeah, and uh and you know that uh, we we might be tempted into this kind of binarism,, uh, but then uh, Peterson digs into the history of wargaming, which uh, he traces back to the nineteenth century Prussian Kriegspiel, um you mm-hmm. know, like war games that are specifically intended to train soldiers and commanders and sort of battlefield tactics, right? A kind of uh, this is a, th- a thing that's come up a couple times on this uh, show. um, the idea of play as preparatory for some sort of like role. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, Peterson points out, you know, there were actually like, three broad schools of how to run your Kriegspiel. uh, and in some of them it like you know people who did these war games especially as it sort of shifted from uh, actual like you know combat or like pre-combat training to like people doing this recreationally like you got guys who were really into their historical battles and all of that crunchy stuff and also they would make up entire regiments of their like fake uh, soldiers and give them all like little stats and things like that right and they would all have names uh and they would die or like come back and so uh it it always like the there's the move to like make the clean division and then there's the way of pressing on the history to show that like actually there was always a little bit of heterogeneity here yeah, that, that war gaming itself meant a lot to a lot of different people.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: you know, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And role-playing, I mean, obviously that's what the whole book is about, but means something. So just to give like a, you know, quick thing, you know, exactly what you're saying. So 19th century, we have uh, Kriegspiel, Prussians are using it. Prussians, I I don't think he works through this history here, but I believe the Prussians are banned from uh, being hired. They're, they're uh, for the most part, a uh, mercenary kind of thing going on Mm -hmm. in, in European combat. I I believe that they are banned from participating in war. And so Kriegspiel emerges out of that of like, how do you train people in, in a world in which you can't actually send them to war? Um, uh, so there's a disciplinary history. He works through this in his previous book. Um, I've taught that section a few different times. Uh, the, uh, in the 1950s, there's, uh, I think, Chris Totten, Totten's Stratego's, mm-hmm. uh, and Totten is trying to kind of figure out uh, how do you do wargaming that has a little bit more flavor to it. Uh, in, in particular, uh, Stratego's is big kind of maneuver here because between uh, Kriegspiel and the 1950s, there are several different kind of iterations on people doing wargaming. In particular, H.G. Wells writes a book on this that's influential. But in Stratego's, uh, the move here is anything may be attempted. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of watchword. You can try anything. Um, this is related to what is called free Kriegspiel, in which a judge is uh, or a referee is always there to respond to anything that uh, a player might want to do as a simulated commander on the battlefield or on the simulated battlefield. Um, so th- that's going on. That's that's really heavily influential on uh, Dave Wesley, who runs a thing called Brownstein. Braunstein. Braunstein uh and uh which is like a Napoleonic role playing PS- uh, Larp, we would call it a larp now, yeah, uh, but you know this is before obviously before Larp exists. and um so what what Wesley is doing is that he uh has a bunch of his friends over, um they are all hanging out, and he gives them all roles and like secret goals within a town that I believe the Napoleonic uh, army is approaching. I think that's the story. It's It's been a minute since I've read through this in detail. And uh, so the idea is he's like sitting in a back bedroom or whatever. And, they you know, someone's the baker. Someone's the mayor. Someone's the captain of the guard. Someone is, you know, whatever, the occupying commander, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they come in and they have like moves that they're doing that he, they tell him about. And then they leave and they all go talk to one another. And they all do role playing with one another in character. And they come back to him. And so um uh this is formative this gets hooked in with dave arneson at some point this also kind of works its way out into the gigaxian space there's like a million different things including peterson's own work that you can check out to get the the details of on this around the same time there's also michael corns's modern war in miniature this is in 66 um and it is a war game but it gives you very explicit rules for for phenomenal experience of being a soldier or a leader in the field. So, uh, players don't know, you know, topographical information. They don't know stats or numbers or anything like that. They only know what the individual character could know, right? So, you know, if we're thinking about historically, uh, when you, when you're playing D&D and your character walks into a room or any tabletop game and, and you walk into a room and you say, what do I see? And the DM says, oh, you see a door in front of you. And canonically, back of the information, you know, there's trap door, you know, in the floor. Mm-hmm. But you don't know about the trap door. That's all the way in, in Korns' Modern War and Miniature. This idea that a player is a character or that a char- a player is, in, in, you know, working with a character is in the world that has their own phenomenal information. And they don't have access to, like, universal truth or canonical information about... The physical space they are in, that has a history within war games in particular, um, going back to Kriegspiel, but really kind of uh, tightly defined a couple times in the way up to the invention of tabletop role-playing games. So that is all to say. <laughs> Those are the things that are kind of in the mix in the time before d emerges, and of course, you know, you can do some deep reading about what Arneson is doing in the Blackmore campaign, borrowing from people like Wesley. Um, and how that runs into, uh, Gary Gygax's chainmail system mm-hmm. that, that comes out a few years before those things smash into one another. You know, there's very famously the 15 pages or whatever of handwritten notes that Arneson gives Gygax. They talk on the phone, they clarify a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, he, uh, Gygax gets a bunch of, of, ideas from Arneson here. And then they, um, that ultimately produces the D and D set. Uh, through Gygax's kind of editorial slash borrowing slash invention. The questions of that are very big question mark. You can, in fact, read John Peterson's other book, uh, uh, which is called something, Game Wizards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it actually just came out this last year. Game Wizards, the epic battle for Dungeons and Dragons, which is about this exact conflict between Arneson and Gygax and the kind of legal battle that happened there. Mm-hmm. That's all the history here. Sorry, I, I feel like it's important to to at least give the sketch there, so people know what's up. But then people start playing, and exactly what you're saying happens. Happens, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is there anything else in this chapter that you know
1: of the clash of these two cultures that you find interesting? Well, uh, here's just here are some questions that people start asking uh, as they start playing D anD. d And this is all in the first chapter. Uh, so because uh, in, in uh, you know, 74 D&D, uh, the, the game is made, you know, we talk about movies being made in the edit, um, mm-hmm. the game is made in like the game master's decisions on how to cobble the various systems together and how to execute them and how much information to give to the players and so on. Um, so some of the questions that come out of this, uh, you know, as, as players, uh, and referee designers are kind of like triangulating, uh, around the table, um, like what are the guiding principles, right? Does the referee, as they refer to the uh, GM generally, does the referee play with or against the players? Um, what was the designed intent of this system versus what does this particular table want? uh Mm -hmm. is dungeons and dragons in in general right too adversarial or too collaborative um if the gm is too strict uh what are the consequences for the players if the gm is too indulgent what are the consequences for the players right like these are like uh you know, both of them are like general questions, especially like, is the GM too strict or is it too indulgent? But uh all of the people who are engaging in these debates always are attaching kind of implied moral valences to these questions, right? There's a there's a um a real sense that emerges uh unsurprisingly that for instance some people look at look at role playing and they see it as uh sort of I mean basically what Calwa would call like paideia, right? Like unstructured children's play that doesn't really uh challenge you or do anything as opposed to uh cool number crunching kind of stuff that's all about the combat. Uh mm-hmm. Or like, you know, uh, from the opposite end, uh, people who see the focus on combat as kind of like uh, soul deadening and uninteresting uh, because they would much rather like there's a a bit later on in one of these chapters where one of these guys is writing to writing an article for a zine uh, and he talks about how uh, he got tired of his players asking him like, but why am I here? Like what? Why is my character doing any of this? And so he came up with a like randomized like a set of tables to like randomly mm-hmm. generate a background for for their characters, so they would stop asking like why am I why am I on this dungeon adventure? What's going on? Yeah, I, I mean it's it's fascinating that like
0: these very I, anyone who's played any tabletop role playing game has had the encounter where there's a uh, question about what should happen. You know in the next moment uh should we roll for this should we blah 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 and you know i as both a gm and as a uh as a player i'm very happy for someone just to make a call in the moment and and just be consistent with it right so like oh i don't know like just you decide and we'll figure it out later if we need to change it between sessions or uh you know whatever just as long as we like going forward know that this is how we'll handle it just for kind of ease of use um but you know we've all played with the player or you might be the player who, when that comes up, you immediately reach for the player's handbook, mm-hmm. right? To to like resolve. Well, what does the book say? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, that it, that happens the the first day that people are playing D anD D as a commercial product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that immediate tension between what drives the bus here um, is is just there. Um, I love that here at the end of this chapter, it's like everyone turns on Gary Guygas. <laughs> Like, no matter what position you're in, like, he didn't provide enough rules. What a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he provided too many rules. What a jerk. In <laughs> um, the 1975, the the Origins Tournament happens, which is, like, I think a predecessor for Gen Con mm-hmm. is what Origins was. Um, and Tomb of Horrors appears, mm-hmm. you know, notoriously, like, Meat Grinder Dungeon. And people are just getting mad as hell about it. Mm-hmm. They're just pissed off that like this is the game that that other people are playing because they're like coming from at least the region to engage with it, and they're like, ugh. He's just killing us
1: in this hole in the ground. Well, it's really it sucks. it's really fascinating because like one of the people who gets quoted on that is one of the guys. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but he's from the MIT uh, wargaming group. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, right. who would who is like predisposed to this type of play? And he comes out of the tomb of horrors and he's like, Jesus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, this is the thing. I, I, I We've done this a couple times already where it's like, yeah, someone said this. There's so many names in this book. It's very hard to keep track of. Yep. I've, I've tried to do a pretty good job in my notes, but even then I, I it's really hard to do. Um, there are just 5,000 characters in this book mm-hmm. because there are lots of people who are doing the stuff. And so if any of these arguments or, or ideas sound interesting, I would say grab a co- copy of the book. It's not very expensive. Uh, I think it's about to get, or just got a paperback release. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's even more cheap than the hardcover I purchased and, uh, and then check out the individual chapter. Um, I think it's a great reference book to have mm-hmm. for sure and also i you know this will come up more as the book comes on i think they're actually design ideas i want to take from these early you know uh, modulations to D anD D that i don't think show up too much in contemporary tabletop games uh, which are very exciting mm-hmm. but
1: anyway yeah, anyway The second chapter is called How to Play, and this uh, begins talking about a thing that we've already discussed, which is that if you look at this original printing of D&D, it is not at all clear what you're supposed to be doing. Um, One of the main things that clarifies is that there are, like, transcripts of theoretical games um, which is a thing that is, you know, common in source books till today. Um, mm-hmm. But none of the, none of the moves are really being explained. It's just like a transcript of dialogue between the referee and then a person called the caller. Um And so what becomes clear is that uh, this is a game that progresses through dialogue. Like you have to say a thing uh, in order to uh, make that thing happen within, within the fiction. Um, you know, uh, this is Peterson writing. Uh, both speakers phrase their statements as contributions to a common story as if they are taking turns. uh, Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. I I don't have page numbers because I read an Um, Mm e-book. They are taking turns adding sentences to a fictional work in progress. In the course of the transcript, uh, neither challenges the other's authority to make any utterance. The most obvious difference in the nature of their statements is the pronouns. The referee throughout addresses the party in the second person, while the caller generally describes the actions of the party in the first person plural. Um, And so... Like that's, that's what people have to go on. Basically. Uh, we end up getting into discussions about like how much should uh, the game master be telling people. And we have a person who shows up whose last name, I'm not sure how to pronounce Sandy Eason or Eisen, um, mm-hmm. who becomes in this book, at least a kind of uh, central figure for this idea that um, players should know as little about the actual mechanics as possible. Um, Uh, he at one point mentions like, uh, having to like, uh, not, uh, communicating, uh, information to players in terms of like game mechanics, but more in like puzzle solutions and things like that, but more like, uh, having to come up with like myths or like in, in world, like little legends that can be interpreted, uh, in ways that are actionable within the fiction, uh, rather than telling the players like, here's the rules, here's how you roll, here's how this is going to happen.
0: Oh, yeah, I think that's rad. Mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. I love the idea that that a player should sit down and know nothing about it, and then you give them a bunch of folklore and myths and they have to determine like how that would work. That is great, mm-hmm. um, and like truly a fun thing to do. It makes me want to like give that a shot, right? Like how could you do it um and uh, you I mean, you really got to generate some buy-in for people who know what's up right now, but that's kind of the great thing about this originary moment is there was no having to generate buy-in. Right. <laughs> You're just like, here's this weird game that you've never played before. Come and check it out. Uh, here, Here's, a, you know, whatever, a folklore about uh, a goblin with a bunch of metal shoes. Good luck. <laughs> 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 I think that's so cool. Um, but yeah, so so there's that. Um I love the discussion of the wish spell. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's genie logic. (laughs) Yep. It's the origination of genie logic of, I mean, not literally genies are the origination of genie logic, but it's, you know, like you you get what you wish for and people being pissed off that if it, you know, so for example, in D and D or, or any kind of, you know, equivalent game, if there's a, a wish spell allows you to do whatever. And so there's an example in here of like, uh, so a party going out of the town and wishing for a Pegasus. Mm-hmm. Oh no, wishing for a Vorpal sword. Uh huh. And, and it, it doesn't come out. No Vorp. No, it doesn't happen. And they cast wish again, and they wish for Pegasus, and then a a big like mist appears, and a a knight riding a Pegasus comes out, followed by a dude with a Vorpal sword, and he just whips someone's head off immediately with it. Mm-hmm. And then they have to fight these things. And it's like, well, you wished for a Vorpal sword. You didn't wish that there wouldn't be a knight. They are to murder you with the vorpal sword, right? And, you know, that's the... And then everyone's like, "Whoa! I can't believe this. I can't believe you would do this. And then there's this debate, which is like, well, actually, if you look at the history of, like, wishes and folklore and fairy tales and myth or whatever, right? They're always this, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... And that generates this kind of debate about, uh, you know, uh, how does one arbitrate the world? Right. Right? Like, what are the rules or expectations that exist at the core of role-playing uh that are unspoken or sometimes spoken that will have negative effects for a player right Mm -hmm. like so much of this is is an argument or a set of arguments about what is the set of expectations that a person should have when they sit down Mm -hmm. at a table and again this is where i really wish there was more of a theoretical element to this or a broader set of abstractions that peterson was engaging with here because that really is the discussion to me right like how is expectation negotiated nationwide via snail mail newsletter <laughs> in the 1970s yeah and that's like and and people are familiar with that and comfortable with it but like i i that's a weird thing um and we really get the evidence of it more than a
1: the theorization of it here mm-hmm. um i think a really interesting thing on the wish topic is peterson sort of fundamentally ends up saying that like that like the the wish mechanic and how that can go re- very very wrong through the genie logic is in fact like the core dynamic of the tabletop D D session, right? He says that, right. uh, every statement of intent that a player makes is essentially like a disenchanted wish, uh, that it is a, uh, something that is attempted. Like some, the, the player is trying to will something into operation. Uh, and there's a kind of like give and take between, uh, what the player is saying, how the uh, referee is going to interpret it and how they are going to implement it. Uh, which I think again is is very interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a you're standing on a 15 foot wall. Uh, there's a large ogre coming towards you with a mace. There's no way to get around it. Um, okay, I choose to jump off the wall. You jumped into the moat. There's crocodiles there, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing that happens in D and D. That's the thing that happens in any role you know tabletop role playing game or can happen in that depending on your kind of rule set and yeah so so i think that's exactly right you know there's this kind of uh how confident can you
1: make be about the outcome of your statement of intent oh you know um sorry just like the other fascinating thing here just looking through my notes the other like i was the the jumping into the moat made me think of this one of the questions that's coming up is like uh do players make their own saving rolls Uh, Or is the the referee behind their screen making those and reporting the consequences and keeping it all totally opaque? And like, does that, which one of these makes the players feel more engaged? Which one makes them feel disempowered? Uh, Which one makes them feel immersed? Uh, All of these Mm -hmm. really fascinating questions uh, uh, about just, you know, how how much do the players get to uh hook into kind of like the actual mechanics of this thing versus how much and this is kind of a weird way of looking at it but like how much are we trying to make the referee kind of a proto computer that can like black box Mm -hmm. all of the calculations uh and and things like that
0: yeah and and that's a big chunk of this like discussion of the role that dice play too right Mm -hmm. like is is the, the, the GM or the GM or the referee, are they just someone there to facilitate like a, a finite set of rules mm-hmm. that everyone knows the outcome of? Or are they someone who is making calls? And, and you know, as Peterson says, it goes all the way back to uh, Kriegspiel, you know, free versus constrained or whatever, or traditional Kriegspiel. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what is it? Well, you know, who knows? And and, uh, the, so there really is it, at this point uh, early point, there is a tension between simulation and story mm-hmm. or more free story, right? And we we see all of these kind of different uh, emanations of that. I really like the one that's on page 50 for me where they're discussing, uh, it, it's a bunch of different people in these zines discussing how do you make players make decisions in a way that characters would make decisions, mm-hmm. right? So kind of phenomenologically thinking of themselves in that position And a lot of people suggest giving them a time limit. Give them six seconds. Give them ten seconds. (laughs) And they have to make a choice. And if they don't do anything, they just stood there. Um, And it, it is very funny that they're trying to resolve this thing of like, if you give players an infinite amount of time to talk and make a decision, they'll take an infinite amount of time to talk and make a decision, which is a problem that anyone who has ever played a <laughs> tabletop game will tell you is very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still are coming up with new solutions to this or at least revamping old solutions to this. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But, yeah, this whole chapter is working through these, right? Like, what is it and how do uh, players negotiate the relationship between GMs and, and, and players? Mm-hmm. Do you want to move into the next
1: chapter? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the next one, uh, this is where we really get to kind of like our our central topic, uh, chapter three, Designing for Roleplay, which is where we this is where Peterson starts really digging into the question of like, how are these people defining what roleplay is first of all, because this is a thing that uh, is fascinating is that there are people here who come in and they're like, well, if you want to design a roleplaying game, here's what you do. And then they like describe their little like game that they've made that does not in any way seem like it would facilitate (laughs) roleplaying as I understand it. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, like I'm thinking of, I don't, is it the, is this the chapter where we get that the guy who writes his like castaways and cannibals game?
0: Yes. That's it, it's just the, like the the minimum viable
1: um uh, role playing game right uh and so uh, we'll talk about that i guess, but um yeah so uh this is uh, well, we start out with this quote from George Phillies, uh, who says that, uh, the, the appeal of D&D is what he calls Rommel syndrome. Uh, another thing that maybe we could press on a little bit to think about some of the, like, the history, uh, and, and implications of, uh, and how he defines that is the feeling that one is actually the character represented in the game, um, the idea that, uh, you know, you are kind of this cool, uh, magnificent bastard who, uh, can, uh, uh, do the combat or, or what have you. Um, so Gygax then responds by saying, like, Phillies finds the appeal of D&D might rest in the f- fulfillment of role playing, i.e. allowing participants to imagine themselves as some super powerful or just plain extraordinary character in the fantasy world. But Gygax disagrees uh, because he sees it uh, as primarily a a series of like escalating challenges. Uh, And nevertheless, role playing, as I've already said, uh, becomes this huge keyword for this game space uh, in all sorts of ways. You know, primarily, uh, again, just looking through my notes here, mm-hmm. primarily as people try to come up with new things to sell that they want to, uh, uh, as uh, Peterson puts it, claim kinship with D&D, uh, but without getting sued or, or making people angry. Uh, Mark Swanson comes up with an alternative term for role playing called ego involvement. So imagine for a moment the alternative timeline where we're all talking about our ego involvement games. T-T-E-E-I-G. <laughs> <laughs> Uh
0: sure. Ego involvement is better than power fantasy to me. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's just like what it's not a power fantasy, it's like a high a high ego involvement game.
1: Right. Like it it doesn't uh, put strictures on what exactly your ego is doing. It just uh, uh is you know running it into the warp there. Right. Um <laughs> <laughs> the uh i
0: do like that yeah that there's this long history here that you know i i think peterson's always really good about that about saying like hey let's not focus entirely on D, even though it's like the biggest pebble in the pond because there's a lot of other pebbles in the pond and you know all these other people were engaging in, in role-playing games before that even in the 1950s um you know in their own thing um it, this isn't the chapter where we talk about empire the pedal throne is it um, I don't think so. A lot of these start running together.
1: Yeah. No, it's not. This is the chapter where. Um. So <laughs> I'm going to talk about this, please. So, uh, all there are all these uh sort of questions about. Um, as you mentioned, uh, with the previous chapter, these are starting to come up, uh, but how do you get character or how do you get players to make character or make decisions that fit with their characters like nature, right? right, right. Um, one of the ways that it gets put by, uh, Ed Symbolist, uh, is let the character play itself. Um, which actually, by the way, I just want to stop and say, like, we mentioned all, there are too many names here, but some of the names of these people, like, Fascinating. How did this happen? So, first of all, Gary Gygax, right? Let's put, like, that's the one we all know. Let's put that on the table where you can see it. That's a hell of a name. But Ed Symbolist? <laughs> uh, other people who show up? Louis Pulsifer? <laughs> uh, Clint Biglestone <laughs> like, Well, some of these people are also pseudonyms, right? Okay, okay. Like, that's what I was so, wondering. But some of them aren't. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because... <laughs> so- I was wondering about that because I just, I don't know enough about the history of the space because I'm like, what is happening? Like, are these people being like magnetically drawn to? <laughs> finally, finally, the community for me, a guy with a weird name, Clint Bigglestone.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, but some are, and I can't remember at the beginning, Peterson makes a decision. Is like, hey, they, some people use pseudonyms. They're, you know, uh, we know their real name because they went on to do this other stuff, you know, and kind of, you know, said that, hey, this was my pseudonym. But some of them we don't. Um, so I think some are pseudonyms, are but still, geez, mm-hmm. <laughs> what a bunch of names.
1: Yeah. So, uh, uh, anyway, right. Like the people are having these discussions, like how, how do you, if you have created a character, um, how do you get your, uh, player to work within that character's kind of confines? And there's, you know, background for this, not even just in like sort of traditional wargaming. One of the things that Peterson points out is that there's like this, um, uh, uh an old west like gunfight game whose title escapes me at the moment um but it had like a, it was a war game right it was about like moving through the town and like uh being either the outlaw or kind of like the good cowboy right the sheriff or what have you um and you had mechanics that enforced what sorts of actions you were allowed to take as the type of character that you were um so anyhow, uh, uh, this question of how do you get people to stay in characters coming up and people are because d d is uh, something you need house rules for. People are making their own house rules and printing them or making their own kind of supplements. Um, and this this is just so f- fucking weird. Um, and. <laughs> uh, uh, "Quote: I don't have the page number on this. Any aspect of personal disposition could be diced and quantified in this manner, right? So this is another thing, actually, that you know, ideologically, uh, we could probably press on is like, what are the consequences of thinking that anything can be systematized or gamified mm-hmm. or made into a dice roll?" Oh,
0: let, let, let me before you finish reading this quotation. Uh, let me let me take one step back to say this is happening uh, alongside a conversation of alignment, mm-hmm. and that initially oh, right. it was like a plotted domain. You know, mm-hmm. uh, when, we, when we talk about, like, D&D alignment, you think the alignment chart, right? Nine squares, lawful good to chaotic evil, right? And all the combi- combinatorics in the middle there. But initially, it was just law and chaos, and then you were, like, plotting your character in between there, and from session to session, uh, these changed. And so, that what you know, uh, uh, Gygax is pretty explicit in saying that, like, hey, you know, you should be thinking about changes in the character. You know, this is not a first principle that your character works toward this is an expression of where they are mm-hmm. um, and there are consequences to where they are located in that chart um, and so that so this question of like your character has a quality and what that quality does to them in the world and how it can be systematized bursts a lot of other
1: discussions which is where this emerges I just wanted mm-hmm. to say that okay no that's that's good grounding because I'm about to read one hell of a thing Oh um, yeah, you you really are about to read one hell of a thing. I know what you're. I know what you're about you to say. <laughs> you can cut this if you want. I I will flag it that this is just like these are. This is how this is how it appears. These are the terms that are being quoted by Peterson. <clears throat> Quote: Any aspect of personal disposition could be diced and quantified in this manner. Greg Costikian had already invented a sex in Dungeons and Dragons system by 1975. Stepping aside here, nerds have always been horny. Back in back into the the text. An initial affiliation role would assign characters to the categories of heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, transsexual, or, quote, extraordinary, where the latter encompasses a variety of fetishes. A, quote, fixation table gives new characters a 65% chance of being, quote, normal, and a 2% chance of being obsessed with armpits. Three six-sided dice determine a character's, quote, sex drive, which must periodically be satisfied, to avoid desperate acts. Kostikian noted the implications of this determination for alignment in that, quote, any sadist or sadomasochist with a sex drive of both 16 must be chaotic, and that paladins may not have a sex drive higher than 14. Die rolls determine the likelihood that a non-player character will welcome advances, whereas, quote, players may, of course, fuck among themselves without checking sex drive slash charisma, so long as they are of the appropriate sexual affiliation slash sex. Scott Rosenberg, who played in Kostikian's game, observed, quote, once, I was a clerical face spider, homosexual with an oral fixation, masochistic, the sex characteristics are determined randomly, not by choice, and soon dead.
0: I mean, I don't, I don't think I have the emotional energy to unpack all of that.
1: It's (laughs) other
0: (laughs) thing to say, like, yeah, like, what, what an example, right, of like once you begin a, a systematization of quantifying like what a character is you can do it to anything yeah
1: and anything it, at all it, and it's <laughs> paladins may not have a sex drive higher than 14 <laughs> well even you know just the the
0: you know the categories here right which right. are nonsense like they don't even make sense like right. in, in a conceptual extraordinary Broadway. Yeah, extraordinary, or like, you know, that these things are not all the same thing, that are in mm-hmm. this laundry list of things, you know, these, these are not of, they they are, in fact, check this out, not even an analytic philosopher, but there's a category error going on here, mm-hmm. <laughs> more than one, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but right, like, this drive to do it, right, that, that the system... That, that this role-playing kind of apparatus would give you the platform to then imagine the way that these kind of systems interact with each other and that, that this is one year after the game came out yeah uh-huh this is like the like Greg Kostikian, who was still a famous designer and theorist of games right like the student didn't go away uh, you know he wrote uncertainty in games for MIT not very long ago well maybe 10 years ago now but a while ago um, you know wrote uh, I have no words and I must design a very famous kind of thing uh you know kind of statement about game design lingo uh wrote it wrote a dnd novel or maybe just a fantasy novel um in the 80s which is just a notable weird thing but like a huge voice within the thing one of his first contributions to this this entire thing was what if we systematized a bunch of sex stuff in the mm-hmm. game which is fine you can put any of the stuff in the game that you in a game that you want to that is not my Like, criticism or the thing I'm poking at here, right? But it is the impetus itself that is fascinating to me. That in a universe of, uh, you know, (laughs) we could have made it look like anything, but we Mm -hmm. made it look like this.
1: Right, Um, right. Like, the reason I read all that is that, like, there is something fundamentally absurd about your outcomes once you start systematizing these things. Once you start trying to make them the outcomes of dice rolls. Right. Right. Um, there
0: is all kinds of other stuff that's happening in this chapter. If you're interested in learning about it. So like where did the progress mechanic come from and where did the regression mechanic come from? So like, yeah, what does adding XP and taking XP away? What does that mean? And how did people, uh, fight that out? Um, uh, sanity meters, yeah, there's a discussion of the emergence of those in the 1970s, uh, and th- those are also some of the first like additional systems that people are talking about as ways of representing trauma or violence or kind of mental disorders. Um, you know, so like uh, the the sanity meter in the horror game is very far down the line from a very clear set of RPG mechanics, you know, from the 1970s. Um, The other thing that I thought was really fascinating here is on page 75 in the physical copy. It's this person named Ruse Mm -hmm. who was talking about intelligence and wisdom. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion even now about this kind of thing about the, about numbers that quantify like intellectual capacity Mm -hmm. in a broad sense. And Ruse, you know, this is in the, in the 70s. This person in the fan scene is like, hey, intelligence and wisdom really shouldn't be the words that we use for these in the game. Because what these things are really quantifying is like, hold on, I want to use the exact word, magic ability or piety. Like, wi- wisdom is how good of a cleric you are, not mm-hmm. really how wise you are. Mm-hmm. Um, intelligence, mechanically within D&D, is not how smart are you, it's how good are you at magic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's interesting that, that in this kind of early emergence of the moment of D and D that this, that for the purposes of play, what in the, on the stat sheet basically is another error, right? Like it's a, it's a thing that is not directly correlating to its intended outcome in the design, but we're still living with that today. We are still living with like this weird, you know, bio truth esque thing. And knowing what we know about Gygax and the way that he, that he approached some of this stuff, I don't know if that was an accident. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I do get a sense that maybe he was he was into... I don't think he was, a you know, like a bio-truths person necessarily, but I think he did mean intelligence and, mm-hmm. and that it might have been quantifiable. Um, but, uh, but I do think that, that you, it's fascinating that that debate is happening immediately. Like, hey, this is saying one thing about, like, the body and biology... And about the kind of truth, the inherent truth of a character. But that's not really what this is used for. And so maybe we can change that in order to change the way the system works. And, and I thought that was really cool. And a really interesting thing to kind of point to and think about. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is also where the religious stuff shows up for the first time for me in the book. Um, page 71. They are not characters until you characterize them with the breath of life. Yep. And yeah. people are constantly saying stuff like this in, the, in these fanzines like there is a huge Christianized element to what's happening in early D&D D- D and tabletop role playing of the way that people are thinking about how you uh, how the relationship between players and care and, you know, game characters, PCs or whatever, and and the way that DMs and GMs uh, should think about the worlds that they create. Mm-hmm. It, it's hugely involved there and, and you know there also that's a gygaxian kind of thing in the sense of we know that gygax's faith impacted a lot of the design of D, especially the spells that are in that and the way that he engaged with it um and i think that's an under discussed here and i think that that's a missed opportunity in this book to talk about like what the hell's going on with this right like yeah Uh, Peterson is so willing to give us context about anything other (laughs) than what people think (laughs) and how they approach the world, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I think it was in the previous chapter that we got the line that you uh, alluded to where I think it's Jack Harness uh, says something like, the relationship between the DM and the player group is like the relationship between God and his chosen people.
2: Mm -hmm,
0: mm
1: -hmm. So uh, what's an ad break? An ad break, uh, is the point in time when everyone around the table stops, uh, and exchanges financial information.
0: Uh, well, that's, uh, wrong and you're wrong. <laughs> and, uh, look forward to my treatise in seven months where I just brutalized you in text. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, you can go to patreon.com ranged touch to support the show. We are entirely listener supported. Uh, you know, we don't, there no, the only ad that we have is our own ad here in the middle. Uh, so you should check that out. Uh, you should do that. If you like the show, you'll probably like our other shows, just like just King things where we read through the works of Stephen King in publication order. Um, we've talked about several fantasy novels that Stephen King has written during this kind of time period, kind of post D and D. I'm sure there's interesting connections to be made there you can check out the newly, the new season of Mages and Murder Dads, the show that Danny and I do where we go through the Baldur's Gate lineage of games. Uh, we are doing Icewind Dale now, finally, after much demand and, and uh, lots of discussion and asking for people. And uh, people are really liking that first episode, and I think there's going to be five or six of them. So you should check that out. It comes out bi-weekly, I think, when this comes out. There's one episode, and another one will be coming out right after that. If you're listening to this years in the future, just go listen to it. There's like 70-something episodes of uh, that show. You can also listen to Michael and I doing Too Much Future, where we do the same thing, but for the Fallout games in about, oh, three months, maybe toward the end of the summer, we'll be starting Fallout 4. So go ahead and start listening to that show. Get caught up. Listen to us play through Fallout 1, Fallout 2, Fallout 3, Fallout New <laughs> Vegas, and then Fallout 4 eventually. hmm in the Fallout Bible. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, what else we got going on? We got Homestuck Made This World. What, what are we doing at this point of home, Homestuck Made This World? The show where we read through Homestuck and analyze it, Michael.
1: Oh, at this point, uh, at, at the time this comes out, we are going to be reaching about the midpoint of Homestuck, kind of uh, one of the high points of Homestuck historically in terms of fan engagement. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in any of the conversations we have here on Game Study Study Buddies, very occasionally, uh, those things come up on Homestuck, particularly because it's a comic that uh, I've definitely had a lot of thoughts about Homestuck while reading uh, The Elusive Shift here. Uh, Homestuck mm-hmm. as a comic that presents itself as a text parser game, um, but that also uh, in in the author notes to the first book, Andrew Hussey refers to himself as, you know, part part author, part DM uh, responding to fan engagement um, and weirdly enough uh, responding to fan engagement that is often like arguments on forums where people are trying to figure out what is this story about? Like, what is more important? Is it like the game mechanics that the characters are learning about? Or is it like the development of the characters themselves? Uh, And how does the object then kind of respond to these discussions in telling its uh, uh, continuing, extremely strange and complicated story about uh, being a kid growing up and having too many computers? (laughs) That's all of our problem,
0: primarily. (laughs) uh yeah so so that's what's up and we'll uh you know again patreon.com slash range touch uh if you're listening to this on itunes or any other platform that are not itunes it's apple Podcasts now what mm-hmm. am i doing mm-hmm. uh if you're doing that uh go ahead and give us five stars and leave us a little rating if you do that i will read a review on the show here so let me go to itunes nope apple Podcasts and do that I don't think I've read this one yet. So so we're, I'm running low on positive reviews. You gotta leave us a five-star review so I can read it on the show. So get on there right now if you're listening to the show you haven't left, left a review, do it. <laughs> because we got one by Made by Sam. I don't think I've read this one before. They should do more of these. I mean it. <laughs> well, let me tell you this. Every month we're going to release one. <laughs> they will keep happening. I love like, they should do more of these. We should. Yeah. And we will. We're doing it. In the infinite uh, fullness of time, we're going to do a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah. Okay. So, get, get on there. Leave us a review. We'll read on the show. If it's funny, make it funny. And then we'll go from there. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and we'll let you get back to the episode. Okay. Chapter four.
1: Chapter four, the role of the referee. What do they uh, do? Well, I mean, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as Peterson puts it, Dungeons and Dragons assigns two separate tasks to referees: first, a pregame process of developing a world in its dungeons, and second, an in-game process of conducting the dialogue with players and running the system as they explore that world. Um, this is where we talk about, yeah, uh, a Pedal Throne as kind of like the first big like, here's a new campaign setting for you, or even a campaign setting. D and D did not have a campaign setting to begin with. Um, uh. So, uh, the question then, uh, Peterson asks, uh, to what degree does a setting, one constructed by a referee, uh, or a game designer impose a narrative direction on players? And in what sense do, uh, player actions determine the story of a campaign? Great questions still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Railroading.
0: You know, we got words for it, Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, uh, does a referee, right. Is a referee a computer? and they mm-hmm. just kind of dispassionately arbitrate the rules and then let players do whatever they want to do, or do they have other goals in mind? And basically, this chapter just gives us a bunch of competing interpretations, right? Like, none of these things are resolved, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a very big way. I do like that there. this is where there's the big deep dive into Empire of the Petal Throne, mm-hmm. which is kind of a fantasy world that its creator had been working on, I think, since the 50s, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and... it's
1: been a long time.
0: And had been, like, working through it in fanzines and talking about it and things like that. And then when D&D came along, they were like, holy shit, I can make a game out of this thing. And just dumps this massive thing. And I've read a huge amount about Empire of the Petal Throne because I've read a bunch of issues of the dragon. Um, you know, the the kind of official TSR organ. Uh, and they, I, there, there are moments in the dragon where you would think Empire of the Petal Throne is the only thing they're putting out. <laughs> uh, i mean it's so dominant of the of entire issues of that magazine um but yeah yeah i mean it's like an extreme i, I think techo is the name of it is yeah. the, the, like empire itself and like it's this kind of like half imperial chinese thing mm-hmm. going on and then half um or not half but like another piece of it is um kind of like aztec iconography stapled into that it's truly weird, truly interesting stuff. You know, it sounded weird. (laughs) It's very weird. I I would love to like get one of the books and just read through it, but I don't get a sense that like it's so mapped out. that It would be hard to play in, you know, Mm -hmm. you you would have to really know it to, to do something um, interesting with it, I think. Um, But yeah, there's this big conversation that happens here about, you know, should it be that only the referee knows the rules and, uh, kind of runs the system in the background and players never really interact with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that discussion really happens here. That happens around immersion. Mm-hmm.
1: I thought that was really interesting.
0: I did too. I thought it was really interesting that basically, I mean, every argument from the 90s, uh, you know, including what um, what's happening in Hamlet on the holodeck, that kind of theorization of immersion, that's all here in these fanzines in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I don't think that's like a problem, uh, in any kind of way, but it is interesting to think about like the two kind of trajectories of immersion, you know, within game studies as its own thing, or within, you know, kind of digital game studies as, as Janet Murray is pulling the term in and defining it and, and elaborating it within that context. And then tabletop games, which have a fully separate, wholly theorized version of that 25 years earlier. Um, mm. That's pretty interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and it's—I uh, mean—it's fascinating to me this this idea again, represented by um, Ison Eason, uh, who who says that like you know it is important to me to keep the players kind of uh, cordoned off from the rules because that seems to help their immersion, their ability to like get into the story, and this uh, ties in with this question of how do you role play. Um, because there is, you know, oftentimes recognizably a tension between, uh, a character who is playing or a, a player who plays, uh, according to their character's knowledge versus a player who plays according to their knowledge of the rules of the game. Um, and that seems to be kind of like where, where some of this immersion talk comes out, uh, but I also just think, like, as someone, you know, like, yeah, like you, kind of an immersion critic or an immersion skeptic, like, I do not think I could ever be immersed in a tabletop game in the way that people seem to talk about it here. Like, I'm playing a tabletop game. Of course there are rules. Like, not me not knowing yeah. the rules doesn't mean I don't know they're there. Okay, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't... I. It seems hard. And, you know, you read... It's really hard to know cause, because you read these narratives of play at the time. And, of course, these things are new, right? So they can be mm-hmm. very like exciting, but it, it's really difficult to know is the narrativization in the zine about how thrilling it is in the immersion. I mean, that's PR for their particular argument, too, right? Like The, mm-hmm. the, the um, propaganda-like usage of the rhetorical style to to promote their idea of the game is just as important as the actual description, right? And you can't yeah. extricate those things from one another. So it's really impossible to know. And then you, you know, I uh you know, kind of out of the same group of people. I I don't know how heavily Peterson is involved in it, but these people who are excavating uh, and and interviewing the people who are around for the beginning of role-playing games, you know, they did that documentary fairly recently that's uh, The Secrets of Blackmore. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just about like the Blackmore campaign and what was going on with that, with Arneson. and uh, it, but you re, you know you watch these interviews. It's a, a fascinating document. Well, I would say there are fascinating interviews. Is not a great documentary because the people who made it don't really know how to make a documentary. And I'm not really not being cruel or unkind to it. It's very difficult to watch as a documentary um, because it is kind of. Loose and sprawling and, and, and hard to get your hands around. But the interviews are fascinating, really great. I'm, I'm very glad they made it. Um, but, but you know, even the way that these players talk about it, they're like, oh, I just can't believe blah, 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 what we were doing at the time. And it's tinged with this kind of nostalgia and, um, you know, how how special it was at the time. So so that's all to say, I think we have to be very careful about how straightforwardly we, we take these statements about immersion, for example, mm-hmm. because uh, we, you know, there, there's no single emanation of it that is not ideological in some way. Right. Um, and that's like every human statement. That's not particularly unique, but with something so charged and with something that has such a debated origin to it now, right? Who owns what and who gets credit for what? That's still an active... Uh, hotly debated set of topics within this like very small group of people Um, I think we just have to be very careful about how seriously we take it all Um, again that's not really what Peterson is into doing Peterson's into taking the statements as uh, qualified but flat right Mm -hmm. like they they, this is what people are saying and this is how we you know we have to read it Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that every game should have a star master
1: yeah that's a great name Uh, I think that's from Traveler yes uh, it seems like it's, yeah, it seems like it's their uh, uh, Star Trek kind of uh, systemization or something. Mm-hmm. Traveler uh, is cool. I, while I was reading this book, I was like looking at the at buying all the books. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was like, mm, how much would it cost me to like just buy every original Traveler book? It's not that much. It's like 300 bucks. I mean, that's a lot of money, but it's not nearly what I thought it would be. I thought, I, you know, that was like two grand or something. So if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking, oh, man, I should get one of the original... Uh, uh, science fiction games, if if you're a science fiction scholar and you were thinking about, oh, how do we represent science fiction concepts in tabletop games? Maybe I'm just dis- describing myself here. But anyway, <laughs> Star Master is cool. Everyone should be a Star Master. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some really cool stuff here about Waddell's uh, levels of game complexity. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have any thoughts about that?
1: Oh, I had no notes on that. So uh.
0: Oh. So Waddell, th- there's this... Uh, 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 gm named waddell who creates the systematization of description you know it, this is not prescriptive but is descriptive of like how do campaigns work mm-hmm. uh one uh, it's one to four one is uh everything exists for the player and is purely a game construct and he calls level one the golden hole <laughs>
1: Uh, it's gilded hole. Actually. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right.
0: The gilded hole, which is so great. <laughs> it's like a, like a thing. What a dismiss. I mean, he doesn't mean it dismissively. Or I think it's. I think it's he that Waddell does not mean it dismissively but it, it can be extremely dismissive.
1: <laughs> the idea being, right, like it's just a dungeon and you can go down infinitely and you're just like collecting treasure constantly. Yeah, uh, right. And it lands a little bit only, differently today. <laughs>
0: it, 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 well, I'm sure it landed very differently at the time too. I think if you're walking around the 70s being like, hey, I'm going down to the gilded hole. You know, I don't know. People are going to take that seriously. But uh, but, but, yeah, and it's like pure game abstraction. So, you know, uh, Waddell is like, yeah, the you know, this, the level one, you go down into it exactly like you're saying, kind of dungeon crawly. It's room after room. Uh, if you want treasure, uh, you know, if you want to turn your treasure into gold pieces or silver pieces, you just say, I want to sell this. And then, like, the the you know, your game master says, all right, you get rid of your longsword and you have 15 silver pieces. And you can, like, buy on the fly or whatever, right? So, like, it's just a game construct. All of this is to make the game more interesting and powerful, you know, there's characterization if you want there to be, but there doesn't have to be. And then there's, like, additional levels in the middle, and then four is a full simulation. There's a map, you know, uh, to me, this is always the Village of Hamlet, which is, you know, uh, a D&D module that I read very young and, like, had a huge impact on me in, as far as, like, how I understood games and everything. But it's, like, the Village of Hamlet. You can look at the map. Every single house has a human being in it or, you know, someone who lives there every single uh every single one of those people has like secrets and shit that they have about them they all have a schedule a day-to-day schedule you can know where they are at any given point in time uh they the the village itself has a timetable on it meaning if you if you were there for a certain amount of time you know days or weeks certain things happen in the time it's this little clockwork universe of like stuff that's happening that the players kind of intervene in that's Mm -hmm. a level four you know that's like as far as you can go, as far as detailing it like a real world. And so he gives these, or, or, or I keep saying he, but I'm not quite sure, but Waddell gives these levels of game complexity, which gives people ways of talking about the way that they engage with refereeing those worlds, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if it's all about players and it's all about just this game construct, then it doesn't really matter if like, you know, the baker has a secret, who cares? <laughs> That's not what they're there for. We don't the even need to The baker's dreadful secret. Oh, the evil baker's secret. Hello, I, I am the baker. I have one secret, and you must learn it. To proceed. What is my delicious dozen? <laughs> uh. So anyway, I think that's really cool. I think those are like interesting ways. Those are interesting heuristics. I think they're actually still helpful um, mm-hmm. for for thinking through this kind of stuff. Um, I also like the other stuff about intentionality. Yeah. This is another really wild, like, paragraph to read. (laughs) It is. I actually want to adopt intentionality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you you explain what this is? Well, do you want to read the paragraph?
1: Okay. So this is from uh, a a system called Legacy. Uh, Quote. Entities in the game with an intention intentionality statistic higher than two are termed a nexus, and those at ten or higher a primary nexus. The rules give an example where quote a player character with an intentionality of twelve is being partially directed and steered by an own unknown statement of effect for a primary intentionality nexus. The player has noticed that his her ability to recognize and avoid poisonous plants is increased, and that his her general appreciation for plants and their value seems to have been enhanced clearly the player is receiving a die uh, receiving die roll modifications as high as plus 100 for certain types of situations uh but she he uh is as yet uncertain of what these are the major clue seems to be that they involve plants
0: i think that's great <laughs> i mean i don't those words are goofy as hell but yeah. conceptually right like slowly but surely you know over the thing you know a a dm rather than like narratively guiding just starts manipulating dice rolls that have to do with particular things to have players you know think about plants more plants is maybe a bad example here right but like yeah things involving you know the the
1: the king's advisor or whatever right uh, you, you suddenly seem to know more about the king's advisor for no reason right 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 yeah. or anytime anytime this particular god or religion comes up you seem to be rolling really well right uh wonder what's happening there right uh, yeah it's 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 a uh, really cool and it's just it's wild to be talking about like the primary intentionality nexus
0: yeah i mean people are just don't have the words for what they you know i mean they do they they have uh science fiction nerd words right yes. and wargaming nerd words like <laughs> Well, it, if uh, above an index of two must be a nexus and, uh, you know, there might be a primary nexus. Uh, so like, you know, uh, the, the, yeah, those are very goofy. But I do think conceptually those are really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get a pretty cool rundown of late 70s computer assisted uh, mid and late 70s computer assisted RPG design.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, also here, uh, uh, just mm-hmm. alongside that, we also get kind of uh, the emergence of games that uh, gamify stories write stock Mm -hmm. plots uh, there's like a, a, a top secret, which is like a spy game. There's another like Western game that shows up, and it's uh, uh, people are digging into like how do you make a game mechanic out of the tendency of a protagonist in an adventure story to have you know one close call where they get out of a situation that you know would have killed anyone else if they weren't the protagonist of a story mm-hmm. and things like that. And I think that's really interesting.
0: Can I uh, let me let me give you? Here's a great you know we're we're ways into this episode. Sometimes we got to keep people excited. You know, for the back third of the episode or whatever. So I'm going to do it, Michael. You ready? Okay, yeah. I got a good one. So you remember the Pokemon rumors you had, you know, when you were like a elementary school or yeah. middle schooler? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have an example of like a Pokemon rumor that you heard when you were a kid? Oh, you know, Mew is under the truck. Right. Mew is under the truck. And it's like, oh, you can't really figure it out. But there's really no way for you to know. I mean, you could go on the internet maybe, but even then you're going to run into a bunch of those, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, saving Eris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, from from Final Fantasy 7 That's one. You know, Brian Taylor wrote a really great article for Kill Screen ten billion years ago that was digging through <laughs> those discussions on like Usenet and stuff, or, or I guess the uh, in between uh, at post Usenet, I guess. Well, would would it surprise you to know that those kinds of rumors existed around D and D and early tabletop gaming? No, but it's extremely funny that they would. <laughs> So let me let me give you one. So I was I was uh, talking to my, my friend Kevin. Kevin's quite a bit older than I am, uh, and this is probably the late seventies, early eighties when this is happening. I didn't get the exact year, but somewhere in there, right? Seventies and the eighties. And I was just talking to Kevin. I you know, and I didn't get permission to tell the story, but it's so good. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, you, you know, if you were keeping this, we need secret. to talk about you. We got to talk about you. Uh, but this is such a fun, a great story that I, that I loved, and it has to do with top secret. So Kevin is hanging out, you know, he's, he's being a little gamer or whatever. He's thinking about D and D. Uh, I guess in the early, it's gotta be the early eighties. Uh, and he's talking with like a friend, you know, I guess he's like, you know, whatever, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there talking with a friend and the friend says, Oh my God, did you hear about what happened to Gary Gygax? And Kevin says, Oh, well, what are you talking about? Or what are you saying? He says, Gary Gygax was playing a real life game of top secret. And he was shot in the head and killed. <laughs> 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 and Kevin and, and to hear him tell it, I wish I wish I just recorded him telling me the story, but, but he was so like shocked. Like who would do that? Who would play a real life game of top secret, the game of spies and James Bond stuff. It's so dangerous. Why would you do it? And uh, I just thought that was like the best story on the play. And, and he was like, and I thought for weeks that Gary Guybacks had been murdered. <laughs> and then, you know, he asked, like, how did you find out about it? And the guy was like, someone else told me. Or this other kid was like, someone else told me about it. And so it's like this playground rumor that Gary Guybacks had been murdered
1: while playing the game
0: so weird
1: it is so weird which i think you know it's ties like saying into... shigeru miyamoto got stuck in a plumbing tunnel or something it, it like... base yes it
0: is <laughs> it's exactly the same it's such a, a you know but i i hope that that gives everyone um you know i'm sure that their kids are running around spreading weird rumors about among us or Fortnite or whatever <laughs> now right um uh, uh, the and but I that was a really uh great story that that I did and, I, and obviously at some point later he found out that Gary Gygax had not been murdered while playing top secret <laughs> and I asked why you know why did he think that it was top secret and not like Gary Gygax had been fighting with a real sword and got mm-hmm. his head chopped off or something or got murdered that way and, and he did not have an explanation <laughs> for that <laughs> like top secret is such a specific and weird example of that yeah wow.
1: Uh, Anyway, I thought that was great. Um, Yeah. So yeah, we have that. We have what you just mentioned, right? There's Mm -hmm. this thing called PETIT five, uh, which is like the earliest or one of the earliest uh, attempts to implement a a little game of D and D on a computer system. Um, and uh, is there anything else in this?
0: I don't think so. Yeah. Again, like all of these are infinitely deep. So like, if any of these things that we're talking about are interesting peterson has like five thousand more examples and like 10 billion more quotes to to talk about it so Mm -hmm. uh, we're kind of giving you even though it's taking us a minute to get through it we're really giving you like the top level sketch this is a highly detailed book Mm -hmm. um and now we got an intermezzo an intermezzo why is this here what's happening i
1: don't like this i do not like when people do this in a book i just don't like it in an academic like... book, in the introduction, there would have been a walkthrough of the chapters and at least some sort of explanation or justification for what this thing is doing. And I'm just, I am not sure what is happening here.
0: I'm against pauses, you know, a pause in the middle of
1: the book. It's, It feels
0: like a weird, like, uh, like theory hangover. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, people who are writing, like, weird French or German theory in the 70s and 80s, I think they had a reason for these things, you know, it, it had to do with, like, interrupting reading practices or kind of disturbing narratives or just talking about some other random thing like there was a theoretical or philosophical reason for these and now people just do it and i don't care for it um i I, this this micro it's a micro chapter maybe that's a reason for it Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah i don't i don't know this is about what's Going on where players are interacting with additional systems within the role playing games that they're playing. I actually don't know what the thesis of this chapter is.
1: Yeah, uh, it seems at least uh, in part to be about the rise of like freeform or even like GM less games. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the takeaways uh, that Peterson at least uh, leans on is that uh, there are people who are making games that basically have no systems. Right. Then they would like what you could find is like, you know, your one page RPG on uh, itch today. That's just like <laughs> here, here are like five strictures uh, generate a story out of them. Right. Um, and uh, one of the points that Peterson brings up is that like, well, that's fine. You could, in fact, design games like that, but uh, there are market incentives for these various groups for the games that they're developing. And you can sell systems. Uh, you can't sell. Here's an idea to help you generate a story. Hmm. so
0: yeah i some oh this is where the glorantha thing comes in mm-hmm. um talking about i think this is a really cool system too stafford is the person who um uh, is working on this mm-hmm. uh and uh so stafford is talking about um running uh, characters through this like uh glorantha campaign and uh, the player character party is doing stuff and they don't have a sufficient context for why that matters within the the game world And so Stafford assembles, uh, uh, you know, does a one-off session that is a council negotiation where it it gives each player like a a one page, you know, a sheet that's like, this is you, you're this council member. This is what you care about. Here's all the facts about, you know, what you, your context in the world. And here, and then here's what the player characters did that messes up your thing. And now you have to negotiate to figure out like what the new power system is you know, within the council here mm-hmm. and players love that apparently. And then when they go back to playing the, and, and it's fully free form, they just have a negotiation. They end up having like an impromptu election to like, uh, make someone the temporary princess of the you know realm or whatever. And then when the players go back to their normal campaign, they have all this context that they're interacting in and they know it. So I, I think that's a brilliant design conceptual move there. I would love to do that in a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to start a campaign that way I think I'm moving away I've done a couple times you know kind of quiet year-esque beginnings or uh, world building things I don't think I, I want to do that anymore I think I would want to do something like this mm-hmm. I think I would want to do like a, here, here are my big pillars of the world here's a bunch of people who are in that let's get you know a kingdom negotiation or whatever you know a, a series of autonomous groups let's get them negotiating and then have players start a game within the world that they negotiate Mm -hmm. Uh, within my like pillars that I want to work within as a, as a GM or whatever. So uh, I thought it was really fun. I also liked that superhero 44 was like a plane hopping (laughs) tie in that happened Yes, um, of like, and, and fanfic is born immediately out of this where it's like, and yeah, your D and D campaign, they can go meet Dr. Strange. Boo. And it's like, all right, nerds, nerds have been nerds forever. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of what's going on here. Um, chapter, chapter six? No, chapter or five.
1: Yeah, technically chapter five, since that was just an intermezzo.
0: Yeah, if it doesn't count. I will say this at this point: uh, we'll probably begin to move much more quickly through these last couple chapters because uh, I think this book really begins to peter off at this point, and there's a lot of repetition that happens as opposed to Peter's son. It y- yes, you know I actually this is really fun. I thought about making that joke, and I thought, <laughs> nah, <laughs> not for me. Mm -hmm. but But exactly right 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 for me (laughs) (laughs) the uh but but i really think that this book uh begins at this point to really start getting too bogged down in the Mm -hmm. details Mm -hmm. particularly chapter six here this toward a philosophy chapter which has a lot of repetition in it i thought a lot of repetition of argument and it it is theoretically delivering a like a conception of the philosophy of game design and, and the philosophy of role playing. Mm-hmm. But I think gets way too in the weeds about what that means. I, uh, I actually took very few notes here because I kept being like, all right, we're going to get to like the thing of this chapter. And it's no, there's no thing. There is mm-hmm. just like a, a, a very detailed sketch of what the kind of network of operations is here at the time. I, I, I really this this was I, despite liking the content of this chapter and finding it really interesting as far as like what the book is doing. I this was kind of like the the bottom point for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's called tour to philosophy, and my immediate question is philosophy of what? Of uh, role playing, but I thought that's what this whole book was about. So. Right. Uh, and and we get like sort of different uh, takes on this. This is actually where that cannibals and castaways game shows up by a guy named Lortz. Um, And when I say that it has, uh, like, just nothing that I would really recognize as role-playing in it, uh, what I mean is, like, you don't really make characters. It's like, here's a situation, you're a castaway. Uh, Like, every day, either you're going to see a ship that may save you, or maybe you're going to get attacked by cannibals. Right. There you go. Like, And it's like, what? (laughs) How is that...
0: Well, it's like the minimum viable product. Like th- this yeah. is the smallest thing that you can do role
1: playing within. Yeah. Um. So uh, we get just sort of like a, a, a several kind of perspectives uh, that we. Oh, the other historical thing here that is actually kind of like beside the point, but also like shows how much uh, all of this stuff and all of these conversations and all of these problems recur. As uh, we get the the emergence of the Munchkin versus the Grognard. Uh, like the generational differences uh, in the player base of these games become apparent and we get the the term munchkin for uh, players who are like young, overeager, uh, maybe a little problematic at the table in terms of like how they interact with others. Uh, grognards being like old hands who are deep into kind of like crunchy uh, rule based mechanic things, uh, deep into wargaming. Um, and sort of the conflicts that arise there. One of the interesting things that Peterson does point out is that like uh, at this. So uh, uh, D&D, right, is is becoming more of a thing, which is why we are getting all of these younger players pulling in. We're, we are getting to the point where like a and d comes out uh, in 78 and that really changes changes things. Um, but the uh, thing that Peterson points out is that many of the like people who are writing into the, the zines are at this point the glossies um because we've also reached that point uh yeah
0: yeah a chunk of this chapter is dedicated to just talking about that that Mm -hmm. in in this moment as the game is transforming what happens is that what used to be fanzines that are kind of run you know as this additional or thing that's built out of the science fiction fan community it becomes its own thing you know Mm -hmm. tabletop games and so the dragon being TSR's kind of official magazine but then white dwarf emerges um Uh, uh, Chaosium has Mm -hmm. one too, right? Um,
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Uh, different worlds.
0: Yeah, different worlds. And so they start kind of, um, I I mean, the way that Peterson uh, talks about it, it, I mean, very cynically, they start finding the best writers or Mm -hmm. the ones who kind of generate the most discussion and then they grab them and they pull them in and then those become the kind of regular contributors for these things. So there's a transformation in like, how does one learn additional community information about these games it is no longer this much widely or no longer exclusively this widely distributed kind of weird set of interactions but these big glossy magazines that uh, start selling like thousands and thousands of copies up to like by the time we get to the late 70s it's like 10,000 is the distribution for the dragon that's that's pretty mm-hmm. big in this hobby so
1: mm-hmm. anyway sorry sorry to interrupt no, oh, no, no. So uh, all to the all to the point that uh, once these glossies get going and we have kind of the the Munchkin Grognard divide, or at least you know Munchkin is kind of a term of disparagement. One of the things that Peterson points out is the the folks who are writing these articles talking about all these kids playing D anD D these days. He's like. Yeah, when these people were writing for the fanzines, they started that when they were, like, 17.
0: <laughs> right, like, or earlier.
1: Right, or earlier. <laughs> um, so uh, you see kind of, like, the construction of this generational divide uh, that is really almost more of an issue of scope uh, than it is about generations. Um Mm -hmm. And so uh, we get kind of a a sort of like laundry list of people who have different opinions on like what is happening when you play D&D in kind of like a meta sense, right? Uh, There's people who think that this is, uh, you know, role playing is primarily theatrical, right? You're just kind of playing. And then there are other people who are like, no, it's a psychodrama. You're actually like when you play D&D and you have to like inhabit this other character, you end up learning uh, some sort of fundamental truth about yourself. Uh, There's this um extremely uh a uh, weird sounding guy named uh uh doug bachman uh who has a whole, like we go so deep on this about uh how it's like literally like a ritual like D D is this ritual that puts you in touch with the realm of fairy which he means not literally but more like uh a, a kind of um a reprocessing of a, uh, of an idea of like a Joseph Campbellian, uh, like, a, a collective unconscious from which all of our myths and kind of these timeless archetypes emerge. Um, and again, this is one of those places where, as we've been saying, like pressing on the ideology of some of this stuff would be really interesting, uh, because this dude, like all of these people have got some ideology going on, but this dude in particular, um, in terms of just like the way that he is like putting so much uh uh work into like treating the Campbellian like hero's journey myth as like a fundamental aspect of human reality that Dungeons and Dragons somehow puts you in touch with or like potentially puts you in touch with in like a direct way, um, wild stuff. Uh, <laughs> this is also where we get
0: uh, Clint Bigglestone. <laughs> I, I know, I know you're gonna, uh can I, before yeah. you say anything about Clint Biggestone, I know you love, love the name, like, you know, we say Gygaxian quite often for, mm-hmm. for a few things. I think we should add a term into the range touch lexicon mm-hmm. bef- before you even say what he, he's about, because I know you're going to get excited about it big <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i don't have much to say what he's about i just think uh what my note is that i think uh Clint Bigelstone seems like a pretty cool guy <laughs> uh because what's really interesting about his take here uh, and he's he's like the theatricality person right it's all just about like playing and having fun um and one of the things he says uh is that um you should like you should not rely on cultural stereotypes to create a character Right. Because that's not fun. Uh, it, it risks like making other people feel uncomfortable. And like this is just like these are things that he is saying. Right. Like don't rely on cultural stereotypes in order to come up with a character. Uh, try to be sort of like open minded and sort of accommodating to people. Uh, and I just think that that is really interesting that, uh, you know, like that's a conversation, again, that hasn't gone away, uh, particularly with regards to D&D, which relies so much on cultural stereotypes
0: yeah flash forward uh just a few years to the forgotten realms and uh-huh. pick anywhere other than the sword coast and you you know you tell me tell me what you think's going on with that uh-huh. um yeah absolutely um but but no i i mean like the big Estonian move which is like uh characterization uh c- comes out of like uh a writerly position mm-hmm. right like yes. you know in the sense of like uh a dramaturgical perspective i guess i should say right like making the thing and you have to consider all the contexts of the creation of the thing i think it's pretty
1: mm-hmm. good yeah let's let's keep that um there's also a guy like there's a this is where we get a little bit of a brief mention of the um gender disparity uh in terms of and then this is like you know not not drilled too deep into but uh mm-hmm. there are women who are writing for these magazines who are talking about like well you know some of this is just like all of this stuff is building out of a genre of fiction that tends to be just like pretty chauvinist as a matter of course. And that gets Mm -hmm. replicated in the types of stories that these things are telling. Uh, there's a dude named Tom Curtin who, uh, shows up and gets barred from writing for one of these magazines ever again because his response to this is like, uh, this bizarre article where apparently he like talks through like torturing and killing one of the women's characters uh this guy shows up in the next chapter saying that uh one of his like fun things he likes to do with D&D is uh uh like torture orcs and like use regeneration spells yeah. yeah like to keep them from uh dying so he can torture them more and again uh maybe some pla- like a little bit to press on here like what's what's going on with Tom Curtin <laughs> And yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of just what happens here is we we run through like there are people who think that role playing is a ritual. Some people think it's a psychodrama. Some people think it's a teaching tool. We get an anecdote about uh, this guy who's running a game and there's like some it's got some. Yep, he's got some munchkins playing and uh, the players end up going to like an interdimensional brothel more or less. Mm -hmm. And then there's this kid who's playing a paladin who like clearly is like, I don't know what, like one I'm like, we've entered an interdimensional brothel. It seems like he's like, not really sure what to do here. And then like two, uh, he doesn't know, like w- what is his character supposed to do? Like if he partakes of the services here, does that make his character change? Does that make him a bad person or whatever? Like what are, what are sort of the ethics of this situation? And uh, the guy who's in this situation uh basically like what his his response is something like well it's only a bad thing if you think it's a bad thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh or if your character thinks that um and so he's like you know i think we he says you know we have some amount of like uh uh responsibility for doing a little bit of moral instruction especially if we're working with younger players and then there are people who are like no like this is art there it is not beholden to kind of um moral concerns uh and then some people are just like it's just a game
0: mhm and uh, we have yet to resolve any of this because it is fundamentally unresolvable. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it is not uh, one thing. Mm-hmm.
1: It is many things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the, the next chapter, final chapter, is maturity. <laughs> We've
0: made it all the way to 1978. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, it's, it's,
1: it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, 78 sees, like, the release of AD&D Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which, uh, minimizes the role of the referee slash DM in, like, assembling the rules. It's an attempt by, uh, TSR to, to close the system, uh, to make it a thing that you can, like, buy and play out of the box without having to, uh, do a whole bunch of spackling, uh, with your, with your game master, um... And uh, this also results in, like, the game becoming, because it is more stable, because it uh, has basically a lower barrier to entry, uh, you get more people playing uh, AD&D, younger people, uh, and same problems keep happening, right? There are all these questions about, like, well, now suddenly, uh, it's so actually really interesting, again, how much this recurs, uh, because like you, I I was a 3.0, 3.5 person. Um, and I remember when uh, fourth edition came out and it was like this huge deal because uh, it had been a long time, or at least, you know, uh, in, in how a young person measures years. It had been a long time since there'd been any sort of revision to D&D. And I remember playing my first game of um, fourth edition and just being like, man, what's it going to be like for kids who this is how they in- get introduced to this game? Like they're going to have a different idea entirely of what Dungeons and Dragons is. And lo and behold, like AD&E comes out and uh, people start asking themselves questions like what what is uh, going to happen to the idea of like tabletop role playing? when uh the primary thing that uh people are being introduced to now is this kind of closed more or less uh self-sufficient system as opposed to the thing we were all uh brought up on uh which was the the thing that you had to kind of assemble yourself right that was more of a kit Mm -hmm. and you had to take some some more initiative uh in order to uh, uh make it work
0: Yeah. And we're, and we're using the terms, uh, open and closed here. Uh, it comes up a little, a little bit earlier in the book with Greg Kostikian, um, basically saying, you know, the toolbox nature of Dungeons and Dragons, where you had to assemble it yourself, it's much more open, uh, in the sense of it is, it is adaptable, transformable, right? You can bring things from other systems into it. Uh, you can resolve things external to the rules or create entirely new rules, um, to to kind of staple onto it, to afford new things. So like, for example, the sex and D D thing that Kostikian makes is this kind of, um, uh, it is afforded by the open nature of the okay. thing as opposed to AD and D, which is like closed. It, you know, these are the rules. This is what you can do within the thing. TSR can add to it, but you are strongly discouraged from just like running it away. That is not told to you in the books It is much more, uh, explicit and discreet in its thing. And that's a big kind of contestation that's happening here too. Right. Of um, uh, as you're saying, what's the imagination of what D and D is for people who come into that much more close thing. And it's the most annoying thing on the planet that Gygax is repeatedly quoted to being like dungeons and dragons and advanced dungeons and dragons are totally different games. They're completely <laughs> different. And it's like n- my man, <laughs> are you kidding me right now? <laughs> who would think that <laughs> other
1: than you? But anyway,
0: um, Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, we close also with uh, Glenn Blackow. I think that's how you say his name. I'm not really sure. Sure. Um, But he gives a new typology of like Mm -hmm. games that uh, seems to really take off. People really like it Uh, because, uh, again, it's not uh, prescriptive, it's descriptive. And uh, I know I took these notes, but I can't find them in in what I wrote down. Uh, But basically one of his... uh, sort of innovations is that uh, here, here broad strokes are like the four different types of game. Now, second move, uh, all of these overlap, right? Like there is not one game that is purely about uh, power gaming or min maxing or whatever. Uh, You will have a game that is going to have some power gaming element that is also going to mix with a little bit of uh, role playing or storytelling. Right. And this is all going to be influenced by the people who are at the table and what their interests are. uh, And so,
0: yeah, they're all tendencies, yes. you know, uh, of campaigns rather than, uh, you know, categories of campaign, I guess, or or exclusive categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's this is also where Bachman's uh, hero's journey thing shows up, and it, to me that just re- really demonstrates how how much the hero's journey sucks, <laughs> like as a, <laughs> as a heuristic, because like Bachman is very explicit to being like if a dnd campaign doesn't move through these moves then or, or basically says a mature and good mm-hmm. D campaign moves through all the stages of the hero's journey and if you don't it's because you're kind of arrested in your development so it's like this whole like theory of human development that's attached to and like narrative maturity that's attached to the hero's journey as if the hero's journey is like the be all end all of this kind of stuff and it's just like who this is like, this would be a YouTuber today. This yes. would be a YouTuber who just applied this to every nerd property and like chastised everyone for not doing it. This is like a type of guy. Yes, it is. Um, uh, and this is their origin point of that type of guy. And, uh, but, but it's a way, you know, in this, in this chapter, we get all these kind of like different ways that you can index that new people were coming into the activity who were mostly younger and it was difficult for them to get acclimated into, into the, the games. Mm-hmm. Um And so basically the way we know that is that people wrote about it. They wrote about how weird it was to try to integrate all these new people. And, you know, I think the end result of that is is what we have today. You know, the very long end result of that. And we're going to get some intermediary pieces of that when we read next month's book on The Forge. Which is the same deal, (laughs) you know, of like people debating about what, what RPGs are, but like on the internet in the late nineties, early 2000s. So that's going to be really exciting, I think, to kind of think through with this book, but, um, you know, but, but we see this today, right? Which is like the assumptions that you have about what this game is provides the context to which you make statements about, about Mm -hmm. these games. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, again you can go to ttrpg twitter any given day of the week and you can find this exact debate happening somewhere and people getting real angry at each other about it Mm -hmm. and Um, peterson's
1: ultimate like peterson has an epilogue and one of the takeaways of the epilogue is that as we move into the 1980s uh this just it gets more and more complex because you see the emergence of like larps which operate mm-hmm. uh in, in some ways very similarly and also very, very differently. Uh, and then also computer role playing games uh that continue to refine kind of the the computer as the referee, as the executor of, of the game system and and so on.
2: hmm
0: Yeah.
1: So
2: that's so, it. it.
0: Hooray. Hooray. That's the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I like reading it. Do you like reading this book? Yeah. It was fun. Gave me a lot of context. Um, you know, I, I I think about these kind of originary things a lot. Um, you know, this is a thing that I've kind of poked at quite a bit over the years. Of uh, you know, it's something I said you say I think in the Beyond the uh, uh, Boundary episode on CLR James that that uh, I think is a big episode that people listen to on the show quite a bit, which is like uh, the early maneuvers of game studies you know as a discipline like you know i would say 95 to 2010 you know that's a weird time to say early but i think most of the things that we consider like gotta read them classics of the field you know that that are not from the 50s or whatever (laughs) um you know they're not from like the deep past but are like foundational for the discipline um you know i i've said this a lot a lot of those often emerge from other uh, disciplines or fields and so they bring some assumptions with them and sometimes they just were unwilling to look at the work that had been done uh, in games before that. And I, I will say that uh, I do think zines broadly, whether that's science fiction zines, science fiction fandom zines, or this kind of stuff, you know, wargaming zines, things like that. The, the, philo- the philosophical and theoretical contributions of those time periods just were ignored overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand why that happened, right? Like, you had they had to legitimate the study of games, and they were more overwhelmingly focused on video games.
1: Right, and um, it would be very hard to legitimate the study of games if all of your citations are to things called the Dragon or like Pillar of right. Wizards or you know Crom's Skull or something.
0: Right, exactly. So, like, I understand every single part of why that happened. Like, you know, and uh, I'm not, I don't, I never say these things to be like, and that's why they all did the bad thing. No, like those people. Uh, like I, I've written academic work. I know exactly the kind of, uh, nightmarish, uh, requirements that, that happen that actually constrain real thought often, um, just in a very blunt way of saying it, uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's the thing that's missing from a lot of this discussion. And, and you know, we, we always got to shout out things like the, uh, what, Analog Game Studies is the name of the journal? I want to make sure mm-hmm. I get the... Journal uh, of Analog I, Game Studies. I think. The Journal of Analog... Yeah, I couldn't remember which of the formations was. But Journal of Analog Game Studies is, has been holding this down for years now at this point and making sure that people are going back and, and kind of engaging with this kind of stuff because there was such a, um, you know, a huge outpouring of, philosophy of of what games are and what what's happening in the moment of the emergence of role playing and and how these things occur um and people like john peterson you know who i i'm really happy that john peterson has been um uh has been afforded the opportunity to write a book like this, even though if the book doesn't do any, it doesn't do everything that I would want a book like this to do. I think this is a really great resource for people who want to write the kind of book that I would like to see. I, I think it's very hard to get to the book I want to see without passing through a book like this first. And so, um, I'm excited uh, by this. I'm happy for it. It makes me really excited to read our next book, which is titled
1: something. <laughs> Uh, um, tabletop RPG design and theory and practice at the forge 2001 to 2012 designs and discussions there you go you got it I didn't have it in front of me <laughs> uh so we're gonna be reading that
0: next month uh that's gonna be exciting and you know what you know what we're gonna do after that Michael the summer of
1: classics summer of
0: classics <laughs> get on perfect summer classics <laughs> sunday summer the whole summer <laughs> the last the last viable day of the week of every month in the summer a new classic episode do we uh do do you know what we're doing
1: for the summer of classics
0: yeah
1: i, I mean in in broad strokes yes i don't think we made like a specific schedule yet
0: classics well i don't know what we're doing i think we're we'll gonna be either. reading some cicero um... uh huh. right <laughs> we're going to find out uh, we're going to find uh, you know answering the question at two brute uh uh-huh. <laughs> uh some other stuff no uh uh here's my pitch we don't have the full lineup yet and we will announce the full lineup soon mhm but here's my pitch for the first one which would be what uh this is april yeah so totally. next month so it's be june yeah june 2022 the first month of the summer of classics here's my pitch you ready okay Gary Allen finds shared fantasy.
1: Oh, one that was mentioned in this book mm-hmm. as
0: the, the first... first academic study mm-hmm. of tabletop role-playing games, or maybe just role-playing games. I guess they were all mostly tabletop role-playing games. I was going to say like I don't know what the other
1: options were in 1983. I mean, I do, but you know, they were limited.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were very limited. So uh, let's do that. So that, that kind of offboards us, you know, from the tabletop role-playing unit that we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And then onboards us into the summer of classics. Sounds it'll good. Be cool. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be good. And then, and by next month, we'll have the full summer of classics uh, uh, ready to go. That's going to be June, July, August, and September. <laughs> is September summer?
1: Is Sound September up in the comments. Summer.
0: Yeah, let us know in the comments. Do you think? You know, uh, quote tweet this tweet, the announcement tweet on Twitter, and let us know. Is September the summer? And we'll do a Twitter poll, and if it is, then we'll do one additional summer of classics book, and if it's not, we won't. Uh, okay, cool. Well, that, that that is this book. I'm glad we read it. Um, happy mm-hmm. to do it. I think that's it. That's this episode. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Uh, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on twitter.com, at dead Great. Yeah. And
0: uh, as you learned in the uh, in the ad break, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch to support the show. And, uh, $3 a month, you can get access to the notes. We'll be back in one month with, uh,
1: the book on the forge. Woohoo! Woohoo! The social is defined by its exclusions.